Chapter 25 There was a police radio on somewhere, or maybe I was just hearing a few garbled, half-heard, barely-understood words through the white noise that was my own thoughts. In the lieutenant's office, men and a few women came and went like the crew on a ship, handing him reports, which mostly he ignored. Eventually he got up and closed the frosted glass door. With his glasses off, Leventus looked a bit punchy, but with them on, his eyes missed nothing. He had seen my own eyes linger on Brunner's photograph for a little too long, perhaps. The man I'd met in my hotel bar was a war criminal. And not just any war criminal, but one of the most wanted war criminals in Europe. It was sometimes a shock to realize that I wasn't the only German with a past— but I hardly wanted to confess to having met the man until I knew what he'd been after, especially as he'd been a colleague of Adolf Eichmann. I'd met Eichmann once or twice myself, and I hardly wanted to admit this either. Not to some Greek cop I hardly knew. I liked Leventus, but I didn't trust him. Do you recognize him, Commissar? No. You looked like you know him, maybe. I was taking a good look at him, that's all, just in case I did. I'm an ex-cop, remember? So old habits die hard. I was stationed in Paris for a while during the war, and I was thinking it was at least possible that I'd met your man, Brunner. But our dates don't match. By June 1943, I'm afraid I was back in Germany. Besides, people look different when they're not in uniform. Behave differently, too. This fellow looks like he's on vacation. You could help me to find him. I already said I would, if I could. Yes, but maybe you were just saying that to get your passport back and save yourself a trip to jail. The fact as I see it, Commissar, is that you have a moral duty to help me. How's that? Because you need to play your part in restoring your country's reputation. In the weeks and months after Germany invaded Greece... This city was systematically starved by the Germans. Tens of thousands died. There were bodies of children lying dead in front of this very police headquarters, and nothing any of us could do about it. And yet here we are, more than ten years after the end of the war, and Germany has yet to pay a penny in reparations to the Greek government for what happened. But it's not just about money, is it? Germany's got plenty of that now, thanks to your so-called economic miracle. No. I believe collective guilt can be reduced more meaningfully by individual action. In this case, yours. At least, that's the way I look at it. This would be a more worthwhile kind of atonement than a mere bank transfer, Commissar, for what you Nazis did to Greece. For years I succeeded in not being a Nazi, I said. It was difficult, sometimes dangerous especially in the police. You've no idea. But now that I'm here, I discover I was a Nazi all along. Next time I come to your office, I'll wear an SS uniform and a monocle, carry a riding whip, and sing the horse vessel song. That might help. In any Greek tragedy, death is always dressed in black. But seriously, Commissar, for most Greeks, there is no difference between a German and a Nazi. The very idea of a good German is still strange to us, and perhaps it always will be. 
So maybe a Greek killed Siegfried Witzel after all. Maybe he was killed because he was a German. Maybe we've all got it coming. You won't find anyone in Greece arguing against an opinion like that. But I'm thinking that as a German, you might have some insights with this case that I couldn't possibly have. Let's not forget that two men have been murdered in Athens, and one of them was your insured claimant. We were talking, but only half of me was listening to what Leventis was saying. The larger part of my mind was still trying to work out exactly why Alois Brunner had struck up a conversation at the bar of the Mega Hotel. Was it possible that Brunner had made me his stooge to help him find Siegfried Witzel so he could murder him? It would certainly explain why Witzel had been carrying a gun and why he'd been so reluctant to tell us his address. He was afraid. Still stalling for time, I said, I'll help you, Lieutenant, okay? Even as I spoke, my fingers were holding the same business card in my pocket that Brunner had given me himself. Georg Fischer, that was what he was calling himself now. What would happen if I called the number on the card? Was the number even real? And who'd told Brunner that I was at the Mega Hotel? That I might lead him to Witzel? Not Garlopas, although in that stupid blue olds he'd have been easy to tail to and from the airport. Perhaps someone back in Germany had told Brunner I was on the way to Athens. Somebody from Munich R.E. Maybe Alzheimer himself. After all, Alzheimer knew Conrad Adenauer. There was that photograph of the two men on his desk. And if Alzheimer knew the old man, then perhaps he also knew someone in the German BND. But it was almost as if Brunner had been expecting me. But since you mentioned moral duty, Lieutenant, I feel obliged to say that it cuts two ways. If I am going to help you, I'll need some kind of written assurance that you'll keep your word and let us go. But supposing this was nothing to do with Brunner, or supposing he's already left Greece, what then? I'd hate to find that you were more interested in your clear-up rate than in our innocence. All right. That's fair enough. Leventus leaned across his desk and pointed a forefinger as thick as a rifle barrel straight at my head. But first I need you to ante up, to show me that you're in the game, and then we'll talk about immunity from prosecution. Like a suggestion from one detective to another, perhaps? That might work. I'm trying to think of something. Then let me help you. There's a German interpreter who's currently on trial in Athens for war crimes. Arthur Meissner. I read about that in the paper. Yes, maybe he knows something that might help. Maybe he knew Brunner. As a matter of fact, he did. He knew all of the Nazis who controlled Greece. Eichmann, Vislicini, Felmy, Lance, Student. But under Greek law, I'm forbidden from trying to interrogate him now that he's on trial, or to offer him any kind of a deal. He might speak to me, because I'm not a Greek. I had the same thought. Where is he now? In Averoff prison. Look, you'll forgive me for saying so, Lieutenant, but a man who was merely a Greek interpreter doesn't sound like the worst war criminal I ever heard of. My own boss in the Berlin Criminal Police, General Arthur Neighbor, 
was a very career-minded man who commanded a killing unit that massacred more than 45,000 people. That's what I call a war criminal. To be perfectly honest with you, Commissar, Meissner's merely a man who was unwise enough to cooperate a little too enthusiastically with the occupation authorities. More of a collaborator than a war criminal. But it's a subtle difference in Greece. Too subtle for most people, given the fact that there are no German war criminals who've ever been tried for their crimes here in Greece. That's right. None at all. A few were tried for so-called hostage crimes committed in Southeast Europe, but those trials were only in Germany. And most of those convicted were released years ago, pardoned at the instigation of the Americans and the British, who established the Greek Federal Republic as a bulwark against the Soviet Union at the beginning of the Cold War. Among these men was Wilhelm Speidel, the military governor of Greece from 1943, the man responsible for numerous directives authorizing mass murders, including the massacre in Calavrita. He was released from the Landsberg prison in 1951. He was originally sentenced to a twenty-year prison term. That's truly shocking, said Garlopas. Isn't it, Herr Gantz? So you'll forgive me for saying so, Commissar, but the trial of Arthur Meissner is as near as we've ever got to any kind of a war crimes trial here in Greece. Maybe now you understand why I was talking about your moral duty to help me find Bronner. I can certainly see why you would put it in those terms, Lieutenant, said Garlopas. And may I say that as a Greek who loves his country, I will do all I can to assist Hergans in any way he sees fit. Resisting the obvious temptation again to tell Garlopas to shut up, I put a cigarette in my mouth. It was the last one from the packet Alois Brunner himself had given me, and lit up, which gave me enough time to consider my situation in a little more detail. I wanted nothing to do with what Leventus was suggesting. Keeping far away from any of my old comrades was a top priority for Bernhard Gunther, and I had no more time for moral duty than I had for taking early retirement. But I needed to string Leventus along, to make him think I was helping him without getting myself too involved. After all, like Brunner, I was also living under a false name, with a false passport to go with that. Well, what exactly did he do? I asked this Meissner fellow. It's certain that he helped himself to the property of Greeks and Greek Jews. Some of the other charges, rape and murder, look rather more difficult to prove. Is a deal possible? Would you at least be prepared to speak up in court on his behalf, if he was to provide some information leading to the capture of Alois Brunner? I'd have to speak to the state prosecutor, but maybe... I'll need more than that if I do speak to Meissner. Even if he can't deliver information on Brunner, it's possible he might give up someone else just as important. Come on, Lieutenant. This man needs some life insurance. I will say this. If we were to catch a whale like Brunner, it would certainly take all the attention off a sprat like Meissner. And if he helped us to do it, I wouldn't be surprised if we let him go. So let me talk to Meissner in private, at the prison, just the two of us. It may be that I can persuade him to talk. Leventus looked at his watch. If we're quick, we can just catch Papa Kyriopoulos. That's the name of Meissner's lawyer. 
Every Friday evening after a week in court, he always goes for a drink at an old bar called Bretos, which is about a ten-minute walk from here. I doubt he'll speak to me, but he might unload something to you. Chapter 26 Bretos was in a district of touristy Athenian back streets called Plaka, and from the outside unremarkable. Inside, the whole back wall was a virtual skyscraper of brightly lit liquor bottles, and given its proximity to the Acropolis, it felt like the world's most ancient bar. It was easy to imagine Aristotle and Archimedes drinking ice-cold martinis there in search of the final clear simplicity of an alcoholic aphorism after a hard day of philosophical debate. Seated on a high stool at a marble counter beneath a brandy barrel, Arthur Meissner's lawyer, Dr. Papa Kyriakopoulos, was a shrewd-looking man in his thirties, with a neat mustache, dark marsupial eyes, and a profile like an urgent signpost. Lieutenant Leventus made the introductions and then discreetly withdrew, leaving me and Garlopas to order a round and to make the case for a meeting with Arthur Meissner at the court where he was being tried or at Averoff Prison, where he was being held on remand. Leventus said he'd wait for us at the café across the narrow street. The Greek lawyer listened politely while I quickly outlined my mission. Sipping a drink that looked and smelled more medicinal than alcoholic, he lit a small cigar and then patiently explained his client's situation in perfect English. My client is of no importance in the scheme of things, he said. This is the whole basis of his defense, that he was nobody. Is that nobody like Odysseus was nobody? To trick the Cyclops? Or nobody in a more existential sense? In other words, was he a cunning nobody, or a modest, indefinite nobody? You're a German, Herr Gantz. Which were you? Dr. Papa Kyriakopoulos was Greek, but he was still the kind of lawyer I disliked most. The slippery kind. As slippery as an otter with a live fish in its paws. That's a good question. The former, I'd say. It certainly took a lot of cunning for me to stay alive while the Nazis were in power, and just as much afterward. In Arthur Meissner's case, he was the sort of existential nobody that you describe, Herr Gantz. If you ever met my client, you would see a simple man, incapable of stratagem. You would meet a man who took no decisions, did not offer counsel, committed no crimes, and was never a member of a right-wing organization, was not an anti-Semite, and had little or no knowledge of anything other than what was said to him in German, and which he was obliged to simultaneously translate into Greek, nothing of which he remembers now. I imagine Mr. Galopis here would tell you that with simultaneous translation, it's often impossible to keep any memory of the translations you made just a few minutes ago. Oh, that's very true, sir, said Garlopas, unless one keeps notes, of course. I myself often kept notes to assist with simultaneous translations, but I always threw those away afterwards. The handwriting is all but illegible even to me sometimes, such as the speed with which one is obliged to write. There you are, said Dr. Papakiriakopoulos, straight from the horse's mouth, so to speak. I could have used you in court the other day, Mr. Garlopas, as an expert witness, 
The fact is that for most of the occupation period, when my client was employed by the Nazis, he had no real acquaintance with the men for whom he was translating, other than the fact that they wore Nazi uniforms and had the power of life and death over all Greek citizens, including him, of course. In short, he is a scapegoat for the failings of the Greek nation then and now. For Arthur Meissner to admit that he knew this German whom Lieutenant Leventis is looking for might prejudice his defense. He was just obeying orders and hoping to stay alive, and any evidence of his criminality has so far turned out to be little more than circumstantial, or worse still, worthless hearsay. Nevertheless, he is a loyal Greek citizen, and I will put it to him tomorrow that you are willing to help him. It may be that he agrees to meet you, and it may be that he does not. But might I ask, what is your interest here? The lieutenant seems to think that as a German I have a moral duty to assist the police with their inquiry. I'm not so sure about that, to be honest. I work for an insurance company, but before the war I was a policeman. I came to Greece to adjust an insurance claim made by a German policyholder called Siegfried Witzel. Witzel was found murdered earlier today in circumstances that led Leventus to suppose that his death may be connected with a murder that took place during the war— and also with the recent murder of an Athenian lawyer. Dr. Samuel Frisis. Yes, did you know him? Quite well. If I assist Leventus with his murder investigation, if I can persuade Arthur Meissner to talk to me, for instance, in confidence, then he may be prepared to speak up in court for your client. Samuel Frisis was a friend of mine. We were at law school together. Naturally, I should like to see his murderer caught. This puts a different complexion on the matter under discussion. He's a decent man, Stavros Leventis, an idealist. But what kind of a policeman were you, may I ask? A detective. I was a commissar with the Berlin Criminal Police. At the risk of being facetious, all the German police who were in Greece seemed to have been criminals. That was certainly my client's experience. There's some truth in that, yes. I'm glad you say so. He sipped his ouzo and seemed to catch the eye of a woman carrying a briefcase who was standing in the open doorway like a cat, wondering if she should come in or not. She looked worth catching, too, and not just her eye. I read a lot of German history, Herr Gantz. I'm fascinated with this whole period, and not just because of this case. Correct me if I'm wrong, but it's my information that the Berlin Criminal Police came under the control of the Reich Main Security Office in 1939, that you were, in effect, under the control of members of the SS, and that you often worked in conjunction with members of the Gestapo. Is that right? He paused. If I sound curious about this, it's because I like to know exactly who I'm dealing with, and exactly how they might be of assistance in mounting an effective defense. For example, it's also my information that many members of Kripo were operationally obliged to become members of the SD. In other words, when you were put into uniform, you were only obeying orders, much like my client. Take a walk, would you? I asked Garlopas. A walk? But I haven't finished my drink. But... Oh, I see. Uh, uh, yes, uh, of course, sir. Garlopas stood up awkwardly. 
I'll wait in that cafe across the street with Lieutenant Leventis. Garlopus went out of the bar looking like a sheepish schoolboy who had been told to play somewhere else. I told myself I was going to have to make it up to him later. You're well informed, doctor. I shook my head. I don't think I'll even try to pronounce your name. I tried to be. Where did you see active service? It wasn't Greece, I'll be bound. If you'd been here, you'd hardly have come back. France, the Ukraine, Russia. But not Greece, no. I wasn't a party member, you understand. And I think you're right. Germany behaved abominably in this country. The man Leventis is looking for, the one who committed a murder during the war. He was also in the SD. That's why Leventis thinks I can help. Set the fox to catch a fox, eh? Something like that. If I'm leveling with you now, it's so you know that I'll do the same with Arthur Meissner. Well, I appreciate your honesty. And as I said, I'm very keen to help catch the murderer of Samuel Frizis. Although connecting it with the murder that took place during the occupation looks like a much more difficult task. After all, there were so many. True. But there's no doubt in my mind or his that catching this particular fox would take a great deal of the heat off your client. Not to say all of it. Interesting idea. Dr. Papakiriakopoulos nodded at the woman in the doorway, who seemed to have been awaiting his permission, and she came inside the bar. What kind of a lawyer was he? I asked. He was my friend, but he wasn't a good lawyer. To be precise, he was the kind of lawyer who gives lawyers a bad name. The rich, cut-corners kind of lawyer, who was much more interested in money than in justice, and not above a bit of bribery. The kind of bribery that might go wrong if it didn't work? Enough to get him killed, you mean? I don't know. Perhaps I suppose it would depend on the size of the bribe. Any German connections? Like me. He didn't speak a word of it. And he lived in Athens all his life. But how could he do that? He was a Jew, wasn't he? Someone hid him for almost two years. There was a lot of that here in Greece. Jews were never unpopular until more recently, when our government started to become much more right-wing. This new fellow we've got now, Karamanlis, is a populist who talks about Greece's European destiny, whatever that is. He sees himself as the Greek version of your Chancellor Adenauer. The woman who'd come into the bar approached us, and Dr. Papakiriakopoulos got off his stool, kissed her on both cheeks, spoke in Greek with her for a minute or two, and then introduced us. Herr Gantz, this is Miss Panatoniou. She's also a lawyer, albeit one who works for a government ministry. Ellie, Herr Gantz is an insurance man from Germany. Pleased to meet you, Herr Gantz. She said this in German, I think, but I hardly noticed because it seemed to my eyes that she reached into me with hers and strolled around the inside of my head for a while, picking up things that didn't belong to her and generally handling all there was to find. Not that I minded very much. I'm generally inclined to let curious women behave exactly how they want when they're riffling through the drawers and closets of my mind. Then again, this was probably just my imagination, which always slips into overdrive when a voluptuously attractive woman in her thirties gets near my passenger seat. I shook her hand. 
and the two spoke some more in Greek before Papa Kyriakopoulos came back to me in English. Well, look, it was good to meet you, Herr Gantz, and I'll certainly speak to my client about what you have proposed. Where are you staying? At the Mega. Clearly, he wanted Miss Penatonio all to himself, and I couldn't blame him for that. Every part of her was perfectly defined. Each haunch, each shoulder, each leg, and each breast. She reminded me of a diagram in a butcher's shop window, one of those maps concerning which cut comes from where, and I felt hungry just looking at the poor woman. I finished my drink and quickly went outside before I was tempted to take a bite of her. Garlopas had gone to fetch the Oldsmobile, and after a brief talk with the lieutenant, during which I agreed that he should look after my passport, and he agreed not to arrest me for a while, I hailed a cab back to the hotel. Unlike Berlin taxi drivers, who never want to take you anywhere, Greek taxi drivers were always full of good ideas as to where they might drive you after they'd cut through the naughty problem of delivering you to your stated destination. This one suggested that he should drive me to the Temple of Zeus, where he would wait and then drive me back to the hotel, and maybe come back for me again later on and take me to a nightclub called Sarantidis on Ithaca Street, where I could be entertained by some lovely ladies for a very special price. Unreasonably, he thought, I declined his kind invitation and went back to the Mega, where I took a much-needed bath and called up the Athenian telephone number on Fisher's business card, 80227 but it was out of order. At least that's what I think the Greek operator was saying to me. After some time in Greece, I decided that it wasn't just the Trojan War that had lasted ten years, but Homer's telling the story of it, too. Chapter 27 if Captain Alois Brunner was back in Greece, this was hardly my concern. In spite of what Lieutenant Leventus had said, albeit rather admirably, too, moral duty was something for philosophers and schoolmasters, not blow-in insurance men like me. All I wanted to do now was get back to Munich with my pockets full of expense receipts, and before I managed to find myself with more trouble than I could reasonably handle— to this end, I decided I urgently needed Dumbo Dietrich to go and find Professor Buchholz in Munich and get his side of what had happened on the Doris. Because it seemed obvious now that the loss of the Doris and the murder of Siegfried Witzel were intimately connected, and probably only Buchholz could shed light on that, if he was still alive. Already I had more than a few doubts on this particular score. So when I went into the office the following morning, I sent a telegram to MRE, after which I apologized to poor Garlopas for the peremptory way I'd spoken to him and Bretos. That's quite all right, sir, he said, and I don't blame you in the least for that. It's my experience of speaking to the police that any situation can quickly become a horse fence post, as we say in Greece. This cop could make your life a real roller skate if you're not careful. Your life and mine. Let me buy you a drink and I'll feel better about it. Just a quick one, perhaps. It wouldn't do to be drunk before lunch. I might agree, if lunch didn't involve Greek food. You don't like Greek food? 
most of the time. Lunch is usually a little much like dinner for my taste, but with a drink inside me that doesn't seem to matter so much. We went along to the bar at the Mega, not because it was better than any other I'd been in, but because I was still keeping an eye out for Georg Fischer, and because after lunching out of a bottle I was planning to read the newspaper and then take a nap in my room like a good salary man. Garlapas had one, and then got up to leave while I was ordering another gimlet. I'd best go back, he explained, just in case head office decides to answer your telegram. Good idea, but I'll wait here. Herr Gantz, Garlapas smiled politely. Forgive me for saying so. You're able to consume cocktails during the day and still do your job? I've always had irregular habits, my friend. Back when I was a detective, we used to pull an all-night shift at a crime scene and go for a drink at six o'clock in the morning. Being a cop changes your life forever like that, and not in a good way. More than ten years after I left the murder commission, my liver still behaves like it's close to a badge and a gun. Besides, this is the only one of my irregular habits that doesn't get me into trouble. Garlapis bit his lip at the mention of a gun, and then left me in the care of Charles Tanqueray. I waited a while, but there was no sign of the man who'd called himself Georg Fisher, so I called the barman over and tried some questions in English. The other night, I was in here, do you remember? Yes, sir, I remember. There was another man at the bar. He spoke pretty good Greek. Do you remember him, too? Yes, he was German, too, I think. Like you. What about him? Ever see him in here before? Maybe. With anyone? I can't remember. Anything you can tell me about him? He learned his Greek in the north, sir, not here in Athens. Okay, now I remember something else. One time he was in here with some guys, and maybe they were speaking French and Arabic. Egyptians, maybe. I don't know. One of them had a newspaper, a copy of Al-Aram. It's an Egyptian newspaper. The Egyptian embassy is not far away, opposite the parliament, and some of those guys come in here for a drink. Anything else? Anything at all? The barman shook his head and went back to polishing glasses, which he was certainly better at than making cocktails. Having tasted his gimlet, I figured mixing paint was more his forte than mixing alcohol. I was just about to finish work at the bar when in she walked. Ellie Panatoniu, the probable siren of Dr. Papakiriakopoulos. Nobody had warned me about this woman, or tied me to the mast of my ship, but when I looked at her a second time, the parts of my brain usually allocated to thinking seemed to have been affected by some strong aphrodisiac. Normally I'd have called this alcohol especially as there was still a glass in my hand at the time. But I won't entirely discount the scent of her perfume, the glint in her eyes, and the well-stocked baker's tray she had out in front of her. Still carrying her briefcase, she moved toward me like Zeno's arrow, in that there were parts of her that seemed quite at rest and others that were perpetually in motion. There were small breasts and there were large breasts which were almost a joke if the cartoonist and playboy was anything to go by, and there are high breasts with nipples that are almost invisible, and there are low breasts that could feed a whole maternity ward. There are breasts that need a brassiere and breasts that just beg for a wet T-shirt. 
There are breasts that make you think of your mother, and breasts that make you think of Messalina and Salome and Delilah and the Ursuline nuns of Loudun. There are breasts that look wrong and ungainly, and breasts calculated to make a cigarette fall from your mouth, like the breasts that belong to Miss Panatonio. Perfect breasts, that anyone who liked drawing impressive landscapes like the hills of Rome or the heights of Abraham could have admired for days on end. Just looking at them, you felt challenged to go on mountain expedition to conquer their summits, like Mallory and Irvine. Instead, I climbed politely off my bar stool, told myself to get a grip of what laughingly I called a libido, tore my eyes off the front of her tight white blouse, and took her outstretched hand in mine. She was trying hard to make it seem accidental, her walking into the bar like that. But the fact is, she wasn't as surprised to see me in the mega bar as I was to find myself there at lunchtime. Then again, I'm a suspicious son of a bitch since they started selling losing lottery tickets. But when I decide to make myself look like an idiot, there's very little that can prevent me. Seeing her in front of me and holding her hand in mine made it very hard to use my head at all, except to think about her. This is a surprise, Miss... Panatonio, uh... but you can call me Ellie. Christoph Gantz. <laughs> Ellie. Uh, short for Elizabeth? Or are you named after the Norse goddess who defeated Thor in a wrestling match? It's Elizabeth. But why were they fighting? They were Germans. We're like the English. We never need much of a reason to fight. Just a couple of drinks, a few yards of no man's land, and some half-baked mythology. We've got plenty of that in Greece. The whole country's rotten with mythology, and most of it was written after 1945. She was wearing a tailored two-piece black business suit with piano keyboard lapels and a gathered waist, and a long pencil skirt that fitted her like the black gloves on her hands, and she looked and sounded very smart indeed. She was tall, and her dark brown hair was as long as Rapunzel's, and I was seriously thinking of weaving it into a ladder so that I might climb up and kiss her. Are you here to see me, or do you just like this bar? She gave me and then the bar a withering look of pity and sat down, adjusting herself for comfort a couple of times, which gave me a second to appraise her nicely shaped backside. That was perfect, too. My boss is having a meeting with someone upstairs, and I was bringing him some business papers he claimed he needed. We both worked for the Ministry of Economic Coordination on America Street. This hotel has always been popular with journalists and all sorts of people in the government, for all sorts of reasons, and not all of them respectable. It's just as convenient as the Grand Britannia, but a lot cheaper. Well, I should fit right in. Expensive things don't interest me. Except when I don't have them, of course. How did you happen to pick this place anyway? My colleague picked it. He must really dislike you. In case you didn't know... This is the kind of hotel where not a lot of sleeping gets done. It's not a complete flophouse, but if a man wants to meet his mistress for a couple of hours and wants her to think well of him, then he brings her here. In other words, it's expensive without being too expensive. Also, it's where a member of Parliament comes when he needs to have a meeting in secret with another member of Parliament. But he doesn't really want it to be a secret, if you know what I mean. Then he arranges a meeting in the bar here. 
That's why my boss is here. He wants the Prime Minister to think he's thinking of switching political parties, which of course he's not. This place is like a talking drum. Won't the PM know that this is what your boss is up to? Of course. It's my boss's way of sending Karamanlis an important message without sending him a memo and without it being held against him later on. A memo would formalize his dissatisfaction. A meeting in here just hints at it politely. I had no idea that Greek politics were so subtle. You've heard that war is the continuation of politics by other means? Of course you have. You're German. Well, politics is just another way of being Greek. Aristotle certainly thought so, and he should know. He invented politics. If I were you, I'd move to the GB. It's much more comfortable. But don't move there before you've bought me a drink. I waved the barman over, and she said something to him in Greek. Until then, she'd been speaking to me in German. You speak good Greek, for a German. She laughed. You're just being kind, for a German. No, really, your German's all right, especially your accent. Which is to say you have no accent at all. That's good, by the way. German always sounds better when it's spoken by a nice-looking woman. She took that one on the chin and let it go, which was the right thing to do. It had been a while since I'd been equal to the task of speaking to any kind of woman at all, least of all to the task of handing out compliments. My mouth was too small for my wit, as if my tongue had grown too big and ungainly like some slavering Leonberger. My father worked for North German Lloyd, she said. The shipping company? Before the war... He was the chief officer on the SS Bremen. When it caught fire and sank in 1941, he came home to Greece. He taught me German because he thought you were going to win the war and rule in Europe. Hey, what happened there? I know I should remember. You may have lost the war, but, and this is a first, I think, it looks like you're going to win the peace. Germany is still going to help rule Europe as part of this new EEC. Greece is already desperate to join. We've been trying to be good Europeans since the fall of Constantinople, and mostly succeeding, too, I'm happy to say. Otherwise I'd probably be wearing a veil and covering my face. That would be a tragedy. No, but it would be a hardship. For me, at least. In Greece, tragedies usually involve someone being murdered. We practically invented the idea of the noble hero brought low by some flaw of character. In Germany, we got plenty of those to go around. This is Greece, Herr Gantz. We're not about to forget any of those. And yet you still want to join our club? Of course. We invented hypocrisy, too, remember? As a matter of fact, I'm hoping to be part of the Greek delegation in Brussels when we lobby the Germans and the French for membership next year. My French is good, on account of how my mother is half French. But you're wrong about my German. I make lots of mistakes. Maybe I can help you there. I didn't know it was possible to insure against those kinds of mistakes. If it was, I certainly wouldn't be your man, Ellie. I don't sell insurance. I just check the claims. Disappointing people is usually part of my job description. But only when they've disappointed me. There's something about insurance that brings out the worst in people. Some people can just smell dishonesty. I'm one of those, I guess. 
Papa Kiriakopoulos said you used to be a cop in Berlin, not the German language teacher. That's right. But I wouldn't mind talking to you, Ellie, in German or in French. We might meet from time to time and share a cup of coffee or a drink. In here it's so public. When you're not too busy, of course. We could have some German conversation. That's one I certainly haven't heard before. Hmm. Does that mean you're thinking about it? You amuse me, Herr Gantz. Next time I'll wear a straw hat and carry a cane if it'll help. I bet you would, too. If you thought I'd like that. She should have said no, of course. Or at the very least, she should have made me work a little harder for the pleasure of her company. She could have asked me what the German was for pushy, and I wouldn't have minded in the slightest, because she'd have been right. I was being pushy. So I let her off the hook for a moment, wondering if she'd hitch up her skirts and wriggle her way back onto it. But what about your father? Don't you speak German to him? He's dead, I'm afraid. Sorry. But maybe you're right. We could meet, perhaps, for a little conversation. Those are the best kind. You don't like to talk? It depends. On what? On who I'm talking to. Lately, I've gotten out of the habit of saying very much. I find that rather hard to believe. It's true. But with you, I could make an exception. Somehow I don't feel flattered. Haven't you heard? There's nothing like speaking a language with a native to get better at it. You could think of yourself as the horse and me as the Emperor Charles V. Still testing her. The insult was deliberate. She laughed. Didn't he have an unfeasibly large jaw? Yes. In those days, you didn't get to be a king unless there was something strange about you, especially in Germany. That probably explains our own kings. They're Germans, too, originally, from Schleswig-Holstein, and they have the biggest mouths in Greece. But, as it happens, you're right. There's not much German conversation to be had here in Greece, for obvious reasons. Lieutenant Leventus speaks quite reasonable German, almost as well as you. Maybe we could ask him along to our little class. Lieutenant Leventus? Ellie smiled. I couldn't meet him without half of Athens getting to hear about it and drawing the wrong conclusion. Besides, his wife might object. Not to mention the fact that he and I hold very different political opinions, so we'd probably spend most of the time arguing. He's rather more to the right than I am. Only don't tell anyone. I try to keep a lid on my politics. Konstantinos Karamanlis is hardly a great friend of the left. There's no film in my camera, Ellie. Politics don't interest me, and in Greece they're beyond my understanding, the left most of all. Maybe it could work, she said, persuading herself some more. Why not? I might even get to understand the German people a little better. I know that feeling. You don't think it's possible? I'm not sure. But let me know when you think you got a handle on us. I'd love to get a few clues as to why we are who we are. My father used to say that only the Austrians are really suited to being Germans. He said that the Germans themselves make excellent Englishmen, even though they all secretly wish they could be Italians. That this was their tragedy. But he liked Germans a lot. He sounds like a great guy. He was. The barman brought her something green and cold in a glass, and she toasted me pleasantly. 
Here's to the new Europe, she said, and to me speaking better German. I toasted her back. You really believe in this EEC? Of course, don't you? I quite liked the old Europe, before people started talking about a new Europe the last time, and the time before that. It's only by doing away with the idea of nation-states that we can put an end to fascism and to war. As someone who's fought in all three, I'll drink to that. Three? The Cold War is all too real, I'm afraid. We've nothing to fear from the Russians. I'm sure of that. They're just like us. I let that one go. The Russians were not like anyone, as anyone in Hungary and East Germany would have told you. If Martians ever did make it across the gulf of space to our planet with their inhuman plans for conquest and migration, they'd feel quite at home in Soviet Russia. But if we meet, she added, for conversation, let's avoid politics. And let's not make it in here. Your boss? What about him? He might see you. She stared at me blankly, as if she had no idea what I was talking about. But that could just have been my German. In here, I added, with me, having a conversation. Yes, you're right. That would never do. So, you suggest somewhere. Somewhere that isn't cheap. I have an expense account and no one to take to dinner this weekend except Mr. Garlopas. He's MRE's man in Athens. But he's a man. A fat man with an appetite. So it'll make a nice change. These days I'm alone so much that I'm surprised when I find someone in the mirror in the morning. If he's the one who booked you into the Mega, then I'd say you should have him fired. I bet he's got a cousin in the hotel business. Yes, how did you know? Everyone in Greece has a cousin. That's how this country works, take my word for it. But I didn't know if I would. Seated at the very bar where I'd already been duped by one liar... I wasn't sure I believed what she'd told me, but she seemed like a nice girl, and nice girls didn't come my way that often. Then again, the truth is never best and seldom kind. So what did it really matter why she was there? A lot of lies are just the oil that keeps the world from grinding to a halt. If everyone started being scrupulously honest, there'd be another world war before the end of the month. If Miss Panatoniou wanted me to think our meeting again was purely accidental, then that was her affair. Besides, I could hardly see what there was in it for this woman to deceive me. It wasn't like Siegfried Witzel was alive, or that she had an insurance claim against MRE I might settle in her favor. I really didn't have any money or any powerful friends. I didn't even have a passport. Nor was I about to persuade myself that she was just one of those younger women who are attracted to much older men because they're looking for a father figure. I was attracted to her, sure. Why not? She was very attractive. But the other way around? I didn't buy that. So I searched her briefcase when she went to the ladies' room, like you do. And to my surprise, I found something more lethal than a few critical reports about the Greek economy. I'd been around guns all my life, and about the only thing I didn't like about them was when they were hiding in a woman's bag. Suddenly everyone in town seemed to have a gun except me. This one was a 6-plus-1, a twenty-five caliber with a tip-up barrel, 
and it was still wrapped in the original greaseproof paper, presumably to protect the lining of her bag from gun oil. They were called mouse guns because they were small and cute. At least that was always the rumor. My own feeling about this was somewhat different. Finding a woman with a Beretta 950 was like discovering that she was the cat and that maybe I was the mouse. I figured there were plenty of moths around to put holes in my clothes without finding one in my guts as well. When she came back to the bar smelling of soap and yet more perfume, I thought about mentioning the Beretta and decided not to bother. Who could blame her if she was carrying a Bismarck? By all accounts, Greek men weren't very good at taking no for an answer, so maybe she needed it to defend those magnificent breasts. I told myself everything would be fine between us just as long as I didn't try to put my hands on those, and that her little mouse gun would certainly stop me making a fool of myself, which was probably a good thing. So I ordered another round of drinks, and while I was looking at the barman, I tried to twist my eyes to the farthest corners of their sockets so that I might at least look down the front of Miss Panatoniou's cleavage, but discreetly, so she wouldn't notice what I was up to, and shoot me simply for being the swine I undoubtedly was. In March of 1957, that was what I called my sex life. Chapter 28 On Monday, March 25th, West Germany, France, Belgium, Italy, Luxembourg, and the Netherlands signed the Treaty of Rome, creating the European Economic Community. I suppose it made a welcome change from a peace treaty bringing a war to an end, and maybe it would even prevent another one from happening, as Ellie Panatoniou had told me it would. But only four years after the end of the Korean War, and another briefer conflict more recently concluded in Egypt, I found it impossible to have much faith that the EEC heralded a new era of European peace. Wars were easy to begin, but, like making love, very hard to stop. The community of economic self-interest seemed almost irrelevant to what real people needed. More important for me and Garlopas, Philip Dietrich telephoned the MRE office in Athens, as arranged by Telesilla. While I took the call at Garlopas's desk, I watched him out of the corner of my eye, flirting with her like an overweight schoolboy. I couldn't hear what was said, but the redhead was laughing, and in spite of his earlier denials, I formed the strong impression that they were a lot closer than he wanted me to believe. Not that it was any of my business— for all I cared, he could have been flirting with Queen Jocasta. "'I got your telegram,' said Dietrich. "'This Athenian cop, Leventus, sounds like a real pain in the ass. Are you sure you and Garlopas don't need a lawyer?' "'No, nah, thanks. I think we're all right for now. If we start throwing lawyers at him, he'll probably just toss us in jail, and I could be stuck here for months. He'd be justified in doing it, too. Almost. Right now we're both at liberty.' At least we are as long as I play detective and help him find the killer. Is that even possible? I don't know, but I can certainly persuade him I'm trying, and that's probably good enough. He's not a bad sort, really. From what I've learned since I came here, the Greeks had a pretty rough time of it during the war. 
He figures I owe him some personal reparation, because I'm German, I guess. I thought I'd leave Alois Brunner out of the conversation. Nazi war criminals were still a very sensitive subject in Germany, for the simple reason that almost everyone had known one. I'd known quite a few myself. What the hell happened, anyway? Garlopas and I went to an address where we believed the insured party was living to tell him that we were going to disallow his claim pending further investigation. Witzel carried a gun, so under the circumstances we were a little concerned for our safety and went in the back door, which is when and where we found his body. He'd been shot dead. Jesus! On our way from the house, the cops turned up and arrested us both on suspicion. We were in the wrong place at the wrong time, that's all. It's an old story, and any Bavarian court of law would throw it out in five minutes. But my being German hardly helps the situation here. With the Greek love for cosmic irony, they'd be delighted if they could pin this on another German. I'll bet they would. Murderous Germans are all the rage these days. You can't go to a movie theater without seeing some sneering Nazi torturing a nice girl. Look, do whatever you think is necessary, Christoph. Mr. Alzheimer is delighted with the way you've handled this so far. I didn't doubt that for a minute. A saving of thirty-five thousand Deutschmarks had put a smile on anyone's face, even a sneering Nazi's. We're just sorry that this has been more difficult for you than we thought it would be, that it's landed you in trouble with the police. Don't worry about me, boss. I can handle a certain amount of trouble with the police. That's one of the only advantages of being a German. We're used to cops throwing their weight around. All the same, if you change your mind about that lawyer, I'm told by our legal department that you should contact Latsudis and Arveniti in Piraeus. They're a good firm. We've used them before. I picked up a pen and wrote the name down, just in case. Then I wrote down Buchholz's name and underlined it, willing Dietrich to get to the point. I also wrote out the name of Walter Neff, to prompt me courteously to ask a little later on how my sick colleague at MRE was doing. I've got a feeling you'll need them anyway on account of what I've found out here in Munich, added Dietrich. I don't think it will help. You spoke to Professor Buchholz? I did. And what did he say? Not much. Nothing I could understand, anyway, on account of the fact that he had a massive stroke before Christmas, and it has left him paralyzed on one side of his body. He can hardly speak. He's in Schwabing Hospital right now, and is not expected to recover much. I drew a small rectangle around Buckholz's name. It was a rectangle that was shaped like a coffin, a toe-pincher like the ones they'd shipped to the Western Front in their hundreds before an advance on the enemy trenches to encourage the men's morale. But that's not all, continued Dietrich. I also went to the Glyptotech Museum, where he was assistant director, and they told me they have absolutely no knowledge of any expedition to Greece. None. Nor of any deal done with this museum in Piraeus. Frankly, it's impossible to see how Buchholz could arrange a taxi home, let alone a boat charter for Witzel and Doris. I also spoke to his wife, and she showed me his passport— the professor hasn't been out of Germany in over a year. The last Greek stamp on his passport was in June 1951. Either Siegfried Witzel was lying about him, or someone has been impersonating Buchholz. He's a goddamn vegetable. So maybe that's why someone picked him off the stall. How do you mean? 
You remember that break-in at the museum? I remember, yes. The cops never found out who was responsible. Kids, they thought. But at the time, I had my doubts about that. Are you saying these two cases are connected? They were kids who broke into the assistant director's desk and left the cash box alone, which is a kite that simply doesn't fly. I'm thinking that it was maybe his office stationery someone was after. Business cards, headed notepaper, that and a few small pieces of marble that no one could be bothered to claim for. For what purpose? Perhaps this person wanted to persuade the authorities here in Greece that they were mounting a proper expedition to recover bigger, more valuable historical artifacts. Some official German paperwork and a few bits of bronze and marble might have helped that story stay afloat. And I think your first guess was probably accurate. Either there's been a local invasion of the body snatchers, or someone has been impersonating Professor Buchholz. The question is who? If I can find that out, then maybe the Greek police will let me come home. Look, sir, see what else you can dig up on Siegfried Witzel. War record, wives, this underwater movie he made, anything at all. All right. By the way, how's Neff? That's the damnedest thing. He discharged himself from hospital and has since disappeared. The police are looking for him, but so far without result. That is strange. Even stranger than you imagine. His wife reckons a cop from the Presidium came to visit him at home the day before he suffered his heart attack. Only they don't seem to know anything about it. I hadn't ever met Walter Neff, but his sudden disappearance made me uneasy, as if somehow it might be connected with what had happened in Athens. As a matter of interest, which hospital was he in? The Schwabing, same as Buchholz. What does his wife have to say about it? Not much. She seems as puzzled as the rest of us. Listen, take care of yourself, and let me know if there's anything else you need. I started to say something else, only there was a click and Dietrich had disappeared. But that wasn't strange at all. Chapter 29 Did you know Walter Neff well? He came to Greece on a number of occasions, sir said Garlopas. That doesn't answer my question. I knew him well enough, better than he was aware of, perhaps. What was your opinion of him? Garlopas looked awkward. He opened his desk drawer and closed it again, for no apparent reason. It was the morning after my conversation with Dietrich, and I was in the MRE office with Garlopas. You can speak freely. I've hardly ever met the man— so I don't care if your opinion is good or bad. I just want to know what it is. I don't think he liked Greeks very much. Or anyone else, for that matter. Anyone else who wasn't German. You mean he was still a bit of a Nazi? I think that about covers it, sir. Once or twice he made a casual remark about the Jews and how they'd brought their own misfortunes on themselves. And once he came across an old copy of Time magazine that had a picture of David Ben-Gurion on the cover, and his face was a study of loathing. I'd never seen hate that was so visceral. But why do you ask? He's disappeared from the hospital in Munich, checked himself out, and then just walked into the darkness, so to speak. The cops are looking for him. But, well, I don't think they'll find him. I'm afraid this sort of thing happens a lot in Germany. 
Why is that? Because someone's ghost recognizes someone else from the war. Millions of people died, but people forget that plenty of people survived, too. Thirty thousand people came out of Dachau. Thirty thousand witnesses to mass murder. But there are probably just as many people in Germany right now who are not who they say they are. You mean they're living under a false name? Because of something they did during the war? Exactly. My guess is that Walter Neff had a secret history, like so many other of my countrymen. Maybe he was already living under a false name, and someone discovered this and threatened to do something about it. So Neff took off before it could cause him any more problems. These days that's a very common story. Was it possible that Neff had even faked his own heart attack after reading the article I'd written on the subject at Alzheimer's request in the company newspaper? But I thought Adenauer was pursuing a policy of amnesty and integration, said Garlopas, that many Nazi war criminals had been released, as many as thirty-five thousand people, wasn't it? Why would anyone fear discovery now, after your government has called a halt to denazification? Lots of reasons. The amnesty only applies in Germany. It wouldn't apply if a Nazi came here, for example. And, of course, some of the left-of-center newspapers can still make life difficult for old Nazis. Not everyone in Germany agrees with the old man's policy. There's that, and there are the Israeli defense forces, of course. There's no telling what they're capable of. Five years ago, the right-wing Herut party tried to assassinate the old man. No, I imagine that sometimes it's just best to adopt another name and disappear just like this fellow Alois Brunner that Lieutenant Leventis is after. Garlopas was silent for a moment. Then he got up and closed the door to the outside office, where Telesilla was typing letters. I don't say that all Germans are bad, he said. Not a bit of it. As you know, my own father was a German after all. What happened to him, anyway? He died a few years ago. He was eating breakfast at the time. I suppose you finished it for him. Garlopas winced. I'm sorry, Achilles. That was uncalled for. I apologize. My only excuse is that I'm a Berliner. Cruelty just comes naturally to us, on account of how we were the last pagans in Europe. So go ahead and tell your story. You were going to tell me a story. That's why you closed the door, isn't it? Yes. Garlopas gathered himself. A few years ago, it was the summer of 1954, I think, I accompanied Mr. Neff to the Greek island of Corfu to adjust another shipping claim. Corfu is very popular with Italians due to its proximity to the Italian coast. Italians were part of the Axis forces, of course, but no one in Greece holds that against them now. Unlike you Germans, they were never very enthusiastic in their occupation of Greece, and, of course, ultimately, many of them were also victims of the Nazis. In a way, that's been to their moral advantage. One evening, Mr. Neff and I were sitting outside a cafe in Corfu Old Town, and a man at another table kept staring at Neff. Neff tried to ignore it, but after a while, the man came over and identified himself as an Italian from a village near Bologna, called Marzabotto, I think it was. 
He proceeded to accuse Neff of being an SS man who had participated in the massacre of almost 2,000 civilians in late 1944. Neff denied it, of course, said he'd never been in the SS. But the man was adamant it was him, and started to tell everyone in the cafe that there was a Nazi war criminal in our midst. Neff got very flustered and angry, and left in a bit of a hurry, with me in pursuit. Later on, he said he'd never been in Italy. And yet by then, I already knew this was a lie. For one thing, he spoke a bit of Italian. And for another, he had even told me how much he loved Bologna. So I knew what the man in the cafe said had to be true. Another thing was that Neff only ever investigated insurance claims in Greece and France, never in Italy. And once, when it was really hot and he'd taken his shirt off, I saw that he had the letters A.B. tattooed on the underside of his left upper arm, near his armpit. Later on, I learned from a magazine article that this must be his blood group, and that all Waffen-SS men had such a tattoo. He lit a cigarette and added carefully, I imagine that this would help to identify Brunner, if ever Leventus manages to catch up with him. I imagine you're right. It was almost an uncomfortable moment, although not as uncomfortable as the moment when, with the Red Army just a few days away from Königsberg and a German surrender inevitable, I had burned off my own blood group tattoo. Thinking it best to change the subject now, I said, That reminds me, I need to speak to Lieutenant Leventus. No offense to your cousin, but this afternoon I'm going to move over to the Grand Britannia Hotel. None taken and I have to confess the Mega is not what it was. Even my cousin admits this. Much cheaper, of course. But I suppose if MRE is paying, then why not stay at the Grand Bretagne? I should have thought of that before. But the fact is, Mr. Neff always preferred the Mega. That's the main reason why I booked you in there. It was his choice. Did he say why he liked it? The Grand Bretagne has just finished adding four floors, of course, so it's only recently reopened. But according to my cousin, I think Neff had some little fraud going on with the mega-management that enabled him to claim more on expenses than he actually paid. My cousin also had the impression Neff knew some of the other hotel regulars. In view of the revelation about Neff's Waffen-SS past, I wondered if these other acquaintances of his might have included Alois Brunner, but I still saw no good reason to tell Garlopas about meeting Brunner in the Mega Bar. It would only have scared him the way it had scared me. I collected my coat and went to the door. Are you going somewhere? I thought I'd walk over to the Megaron Papadoff and tell Leventus in person that I'm moving hotels, just to make him feel as if I'm taking him seriously. Policemen like that kind of attention to the umlauts. You are taking him seriously, aren't you, sir? Sure. I want to come out of this in one piece. Any talk about firing squads worries me. I'm delighted to hear it. I'd hate to end up in Haidari among those awful criminals. I've known a lot of criminals, and I can tell you that with the exception of the ones like Alois Brunner, most are just ordinary people like you and me. They lack imagination, that's all. Crimes are committed when men take an idea that seems like a good idea 
and then can't think of enough good reasons why it might not be a good idea. All the same, I'd rather avoid the Haidari if possible. For the sake of my children, you understand. They're at the Lycée Leonin, one of the best schools in Athens. It takes a dim view of parents who don't measure up to the rigorous moral standards set by the monks who run the school. That's the only reason my wife has not yet divorced me. Would you like me to accompany you, sir? No. I want you to stay here and telephone Dr. Liakos at the Archaeological Museum in Piraeus and arrange for us to see him again. I need to speak to him about Professor Buchholz and see if you can find out from that lawyer, Papa Kyriakopoulos, if Arthur Meissner has agreed to see me yet. I'll be back in an hour. At least I hope I will. Well done, sir. We'll make a Greek out of you yet. Your pronunciation of his very complicated name was faultless. I'm German, Mr. Galapas. We have some very complex words of our own to practice on. Some German words take so long to say that they have their own damn timetables. Chapter 30 In his office at the Megaron Papadov, I told Lieutenant Leventis I was changing hotels. Is that all you came here to tell me, Commissar? That you're going to the GB? I'm disappointed. I thought you'd like to know in case you wanted to buy me breakfast one morning. You can probably look out of your office window and see into my bathroom if it helps make that happen. Good idea. But are you sure no one is dead in it? Just my love life, probably. When they find that body, you can arrest me all over again. Why bother? You're still my number one suspect in the Witzel case. Clearly you're not very good with numbers. You already told me the name of your number one suspect. At best, I'm number three. Who's number two? Garlopas. That's not very loyal of you, Commissar. No, it isn't. But his home is in Greece, mine's in Germany, and I want to get back there one day. Which is why I'm in here writing my room number on your handkerchief and lipstick. Anything else you want to talk about? Not a damn thing. I told you, Commissar, I'm blind here, and I want you to be my dog, so bark a little, will you? I lit up a cigarette and blew some smoke at the high ceiling. The fan wasn't moving, which was how I knew it was still officially winter in Athens. Otherwise, it seemed quite warm in his office. Leventus leaned back on his chair, looking at me steadily all the time, waiting for me to say something more, and then nodded when I didn't. You keep your mouth shut unless you've got something to say. All right. Not many people can do that judiciously, especially in here. You've a talent for saying not very much, Commissar. I never learn much by listening to myself. No? Then maybe I can tell you something interesting. That'll make a nice change. Don't forget your position here, Gantz. He wagged his finger at me like I was a naughty schoolboy and grinned. You're a little impertinent for a suspect. That's just my manner. It doesn't work with everyone. Only with people, not cops. Look, I said I'd cooperate with you, Leventus, not crown you with wild olive. And we both know I'm a poor choice of suspect. 
on account of how I turned up at the murder scene after the murder. Garlopas, too. It's time you admitted that, Copper, or else you're dumber than I thought you were. My name isn't Copper. It's Stavros P. Leventis. But you can call me Lieutenant. And in here, I don't have to admit to a damn thing. I leave that to other people. What's dumb about that? Nothing at all. What does the P stand for, anyway? Patroclus. Only keep that quiet. I'll lend it someone else's armor if it will help get me out of this damn country. Tell me what's so interesting, Pat. Last night, the city police picked up a local burglar by the name of Chocotopolis. Only everyone calls him Choc. Now that I can understand. He put his hands up to a whole string of burglaries across the city, but here's where it starts to get interesting. I was hoping it might. He claims he was put up to robbing Frizzis's office in Glyfada, says the job was to take one client file and to cover his tracks, so that the lawyer didn't even know he'd been there, says he was paid to do it by a man he met in a nightclub, the Chez Lapin in Castella. Sounds like a real hole. Did this man have a name? Just Spiros. That narrows it down nicely. And what was the client's name? Leventus grinned patiently. Spiros told Chalk to look for a client file in the name of Fisher, Georg Fisher. He did the job as asked, went in and out without a trace, took the client file back to the club a few hours later, and got paid. So everyone was happy. Now it just so happens that Frizzis's diary contains an appointment with a Mr. Fisher just a few days before he was murdered. Well, it would if he was a client. Fisher is a German name. That's right. I was hoping you might have a theory on that one. It's the fourth most common German surname there is. That narrows it down. Come on, Gantz. You can do better than that. Whose side are you on here? Whose side? I don't know the names of the teams that are on the pitch here, and even if I did, I certainly couldn't pronounce them. You know, I think I must have left my sense of humor in my other uniform. The clean one? I'd hate to kick you on the leg, Gantz. I'd probably get gangrene. What kind of commissar were you, anyway? I wore a shirt and tie, turned up for work every day, carried a warrant disc, and sometimes they let me arrest people. But none of the bosses really gave a shit about me detecting any crimes because they were too busy committing crimes themselves. Nothing serious. Crimes against humanity and that kind of thing. Look, Pat. Lieutenant. I was making a living and trying to stay alive, not preaching the first crusade. Let me ask you this. Did you show this chalk fellow your photograph of Brunner, the one you showed me? Yes, but he's quite sure it wasn't him who put him up to the job. Hmm. What does that mean? Hegel said it once. It's German for I'm thinking. After a while, I shook my head for emphasis, just to let him know I'd finished the thought. What do you think you're dealing with here? An insurance claim? Look... I know you know more than you're saying. I can see it written on your face. Now you know why I stopped being a criminal and became a cop instead. 
All right, maybe I do know something. But don't get mad when I tell you. I only just figured this out myself. And I'd feel better about telling you what that is if we walked across the street and you let me buy you a drink. Leventus picked up his cap and walked toward the office door, buttoning his tunic. Two things I can smell from a hundred meters away. My mother's Uvetsi lamb stew and a lying cop. I keep telling you, I'm in the insurance business. It's my guess your company hired you because you're an ex-cop and you've got a dirty mind. I'm just doing the same as them. Detection is in your blood, Gantz, as if it was a disease. If you mean it's one that I can't seem to shake off, then you're right. It's like leprosy. I keep winding bandages around my face, but nothing seems to work. One day I'm afraid I'm going to lose my nose. That's an occupational hazard for all detectives. His secretary handed him his gloves and a little swagger stick, and we went downstairs and outside. Behind the long marble bar at the Grand Britannia was an old tapestry as big as the fire screen on a theater stage, depicting the triumph of some ancient Greek who probably wasn't Hector on account of the fact that he was riding in a chariot instead of being dragged behind one. It was a nice quiet bar. The prices were fixed to make sure of that like heavily armed hoplites. Facing the tapestry were eight tall stools, and sitting at the bar was like watching a large projection screen with just one stationary, rather dull picture, a bit like Greek television. They had so many bottles behind the bar, I guess they must have some Navy-strength gin, and since the barman evidently knew the difference between a fresh lime and the liquid green sugar that came in a bottle, I ordered a gimlet, and the lieutenant ordered iced racky. We sipped our drinks politely, but I was already ordering another and a packet of butts. All excuses sound better after a drink. So now you've had yours, start talking, Commissar. All right. When you showed me Brunner's picture, I took my time about it, right? That was me racking my brains trying to remember where I'd seen him before. France, Germany, the Balkans... It's taken me until now to realize I was opening the wrong drawers. I couldn't remember him because he wasn't in my memory. He was at the end of a bar. This bar. I only told Leventus this small lie because I didn't want him asking about Fisher at the bar of the Mega Hotel and discovering I'd already asked questions about him myself. You mean Brunner was in here? In this hotel? That's right, in this very bar. About a week ago, we got to talking, the way two men do when they discover they're both from the same part of the world. He told me his name was Georg Fischer and that he was a tobacco salesman. Gave me a packet of Corellia to try. There's not much more to it than that. I didn't remember him right away because he's almost 15 years older than that picture you showed me. Less hair, put on a little weight, perhaps. Gruff voice, like he gargles with yesterday's brandy. I mean, you don't connect a wanted Nazi war criminal with a friendly guy you meet in an Athens bar. Well, when you mentioned the name Georg Fischer back in your office, I suddenly put two and two together and came up with the man I'd met in this bar. This story you're telling, you spread it on a field of sugar beet. Not Lieutenant Stavros P. Leventis. It happens to be true. People look different when they're in uniform. 
I mean, looking at you, anyone would think you know what the hell you're doing. He struck up a conversation because I figure he'd been keeping an eye on me ever since I arrived in Athens. My guess is that he was looking for Siegfried Witzel, and that he was hoping I might help him. Unwittingly, of course. I guess that's your own middle name, Commissar. My guess is that he waited for Witzel to show up at MRE's offices around the corner, and then followed me when I followed Witzel to the place where he'd been lying low ever since the Doris sank. Went back a bit later and then killed him. He and Witzel probably knew each other from before the war. I'm not sure, but I think Witzel was involved in some scheme to look for ancient Greek artifacts that he could sell on the black market, assuming there is a black market for that kind of thing. Sure there is. It's a thriving one, too. There are lots of museums and private collectors who want a bit of Greek history on the cheap. Not just ours. Roman treasures, too. I'm still working on that. I'm hoping I'll have a little more information after I've spoken to the director of the archaeological museum in Piraeus. It looks like there was some agreement between the museum in Piraeus and a museum in Munich to share any discoveries. But that might just have been a cover. Maybe Brunner wanted to share, too. Or maybe it was a revenge thing. I don't know. But if I had to guess some more... You do? Then I'd say that Brunner might have had something to do with the sinking of the boat. I have no idea how. Not yet. Tell me more about Fisher. Good suit, gold watch, nice lighter, even nicer manners. He looked like he was doing all right for himself. He spoke Greek, or at least as far as I was able to tell. What I mean to say is that he was reading a Greek newspaper, and he seemed to speak to the barman fluently enough. He said he liked it here, and I got the impression he was in Greece a lot. Is that all? Look, I've got lots of faults, but protecting Nazi war criminals isn't one of them. Says you. Frequently. And Meissner? Has he agreed to meet you yet? Right now, that's a maybe, too. You've got a lot of maybes, Commissar. Enough to operate the roulette wheel, maybe. Certainly many more than your old bosses in Germany would ever have tolerated. From what I've read of the SS and the Gestapo, they didn't much like maybes. They preferred results. We have that in common, at least. In case you've forgotten, my own boss is a man called Captain Kokinos, and he's an impatient man. He thinks I should bring you in and sweat you and your fat friend Garlopis. He's been hitting the walls because I don't. I've seen your walls, and I don't think your decorator will care. Because then I'd have to waste time listening to your lies. So I tell you what I'm going to do, Gantz. From now on, you're gonna tell me every move you make. Anything you do, I want a report. Just like you were a cop again. You can have your secretary type it. If you don't, I'll make sure they bury you in the deepest cell in Haidari. Solitary confinement for as long as it takes to break you. I don't much care about Garlopis. He'll say anything to stay out of prison. But you're another story. You'll be talking to yourself inside a fortnight. Because no one will be listening. Not even me. I'll forget all about you, maybe. This is the home of democracy, but we can behave in some very undemocratic ways when we put our minds to it. So you can take your choice. 
but you need to start confiding in me like I'm your father confessor. Only then can you get absolution. And only then can you go home. I nodded, full of compliance and cooperation, like I was the most craven informer ever to be bullied by a policeman. But I could already see I was going to need the firm of lawyers in Piraeus that Dietrich had recommended, and later that day I called them and made an appointment, on the same day we were scheduled to see Dr. Liakos again. Chapter 31 Latsutis and Arvanidi were located on the corner of Themistocles Street, in a modern building overlooking the main port of Piraeus, from where I could easily have taken a ferry to one of the Greek islands. After my conversation with Lieutenant Leventus, I was seriously considering it. Garlopas had at last swapped the Oldsmobile for a smaller Rover P-4, and while he parked it, I waited in the yellow church on the square, and but for the idea that there were other mugs who'd tried it already, I might have prayed. When he fetched me, he said the church was built on the ruins of the Temple of Venus, and being a bit of a pagan and generally fond of goddesses, I said it didn't look like much of an improvement. We went up to the firm's offices and met with two lawyers, neither of whom was called Latsutis or Arvaniti, who told us in a mixture of Greek and English, and the pungent smoke of Turkish cigarettes, that we had their sympathy, that one of them would gladly represent us in court, that what had happened was entirely typical of Athens, and that the Attica police were little better than the Greek army and fascists to boot, for whom torture and the abuse of human rights were second nature, and that Captain Kokinos fancied himself to be a man with a political future, not to say a potential dictator. It was best, they advised, that we do exactly what we were told." Otherwise, we should end up like many communist DSE fighters and KKE members and find ourselves sent to the island of Macronesos, or worse, imprisoned in Block 15, where lawyers were not allowed and conditions were nothing short of barbaric, even by Nazi standards. None of this was reassuring to me, but as we left, Garlapa said that I should take nothing of what they had said too seriously— and that the view of these lawyers was only representative of the kind of people who lived in Piraeus, who had no love for the people of Athens, which came as something of a surprise to me since Piraeus was only five kilometers from the center of the Greek capital. To my mind, we would be better off being represented by a local firm, said Garlapas as we made our way to the archaeological museum and our second meeting with Dr. Liakos such as the one I recommended to poor Mr. Witzel. Another cousin, no doubt. No, although I do have a relation in the legal profession. My wife's uncle Janus is a lawyer in Corinth, but I shouldn't wish my worst enemy to be represented by him. Pegasus himself would take flight before retaining a man like Janus Papageorgopoulos. There's a brass nameplate I'd hate to have to engrave. Look, I'm sure Mr. Dietrich is correct, that Latsudis and Arvaniti are a perfectly good and highly respectable firm of lawyers, but if it was my money, I'd prefer a firm in Attica, such as the one in our own office building. Why the hell didn't he recommend them, then? I asked. 
Because outsiders don't appreciate the antipathy that exists between Piraeus and Athens, no one could who doesn't live here. Yes, Piraeus is on the doorstep of Athens, but it might as well be a hundred kilometers away. Such is the loading between these two cities. A man who lives in Athens would never be represented by a firm in Piraeus, or the other way round. But perhaps you would like me to explain this to you, sir. Not today, I said. Oh, it would take a lot longer than that. I figure as much. It sounds a lot like the hatred between Munich and Berlin. Nobody else gets that either. Nobody else it matters, anyway. Only Germans. Things were quiet at the museum again. We were a bit early for our meeting with Dr. Liakos, so we walked around for a few minutes looking at the museum's many exhibits. While it crossed my mind that the Nazis had managed to make all classical statuary look just a bit fascist, any one of the outsized bronze figures at the museum in Piraeus might easily have been banged out on Hitler's orders by a stooge like Arno Brecker. I wasn't really looking. I was still preoccupied with what Lieutenant Leventus had said, and for the first time in months I felt as if I needed an all-risks insurance policy. Dr. Liakos was wearing a yellow carnation in the lapel of a beige cotton suit and a yellow bow tie. His previously grayish hair had a lot more yellow in it than before, as if freshly stained with nicotine, which made him look like some hennaed Sufi mystic, or perhaps the oldest boy soprano in the church choir. Even the smoke from his cherrywood pipe looked vaguely yellow. All in all, there was much too much yellow in the room. It was like staring through a bottle of brilliantine. "'It's good of you to see us again, sir,' I said, and then explained how the real Professor Buchholz could not possibly have met with him in Piraeus, at which point Liakos stared at me over the top of his half-moon glasses with the look of a dyspeptic judge. Garlopas translated from the Greek. "'Are you calling me a liar?' said Liakos. "'No, sir, not at all.' What I'm saying is that the man you met was an impostor, that he was impersonating the real Professor Buchholz. Well, who was he then? That's what I'm hoping to find out. I wondered if you could provide me with a physical description of the man you met. Liakos took off his glasses, folded them into a box, and rubbed the end of his pencil-like nose. Let's see now. Hmm... About sixty years old, large, overweight, tall, about as tall as you, perhaps. Silver hair, large, trousers too high on his waist. I mean, the man's trousers were virtually on his chest. Spoke good Greek, for a German. He lit his pipe and considered the matter some more. A little self-satisfied, perhaps. Large. I don't know. Maybe not as old as sixty, fifty, probably. I nodded. Anything else? Liako shook his head. No, I'm sorry. That's about it, I'm afraid. But look, there was nothing wrong with his permissions. Those came straight from the ministry. And the signatures were impeccable. They couldn't possibly have been fraudulent. Unless... Yes. Well, it's not unknown for government officials in this country to take a bribe, 
Not that I'm saying anyone did, mind you. That's up to you to determine. We've got used to the idea of our leaders lying to us and being corrupt. For most Greeks it doesn't matter that they're corrupt. We expect it. Why else would they enter office in the first place? But you surprise me. The man who sat in your chair seemed very polished, and exactly like a man who was a professor. Shall we say he was a gentleman? Yes, an academic sort of fellow anyway. Well-read, I should say. I mean, he was quite convincing. Of course, it does explain the mistake he made about the small artifacts found on the wreck site by Herr Witzel. If you remember, I did mention before that these were identified by the professor as late Helladic when they were very definitely much earlier. Thanks for your help, I said. Can I ask you one last thing? Assuming that this man meant to cheat your museum out of its share of any treasures found in the sea, can you tell me if there's much of a market in this kind of thing? I mean, is there real money to be made? Oh, yes. And a lot of these antiquities come through Piraeus. Egyptian, Byzantine, Assyrian, Islamic, Greek, you name it. Mostly it ends up in the hands of private collectors in the United States— but also in smaller city museums that are looking to put themselves on the cultural map. The black market trade in antiquities is worth a lot of money, and these days it's happening on an industrial scale. A good-conditioned Roman bust of the second century might be worth up to $50,000. I've even heard that Nasser is using ancient Egyptian art to pay for illegal weapons. He puffed at his pipe. Do you think that's what this man is up to? I really don't know. I can't see a better reason. You know my secretary, Calliope. She spent as much time with this man as I did. She might be able to add something to what I've told you, Mr. Gantz. Liakos picked up the telephone and summoned his secretary to his office. A few minutes later, a heavy gray-haired woman of about fifty entered the room. She was wearing black and generally resembled a poorly erected Bedouin's tent. From a distance she looked pretty good. Up close, I needed to see a good optician. It wasn't that she was ugly, or even plain. Only that she'd reached a time in her life when romantic love was a locked door that didn't need a key. I explained my mission and waited. She rubbed the stubble on her face, rolled her eyes a bit, and started talking in Greek which Garlopas translated simultaneously. He was a big man, tall, about 185 centimeters, overweight, chest about a 56, waist the same as my husband's, which is a 97, wheezy, bad breath, smoked a lot, walked like a duck, silver hair, brown globular eyes with next to no eyelashes. Never met your eye, though. He had beautiful hands, which were manicured, and he was always tapping the tips of his fingers when he was thinking. Jacket pockets full, spoke good Greek, nice watch. She saw a poster for a movie at the cinema near where she lives, just off Epiru Street, and there's an American man on that poster that looks exactly like Professor Buchholz, or at least the man who said he was Professor Buchholz. Not the leading man, Amelia, character actor. Not Orson Welles. 
Only she can't remember the name of the movie. I looked at my watch and saw that it was getting near the museum's closing time. Maybe we could run the lady home, I said, and then she could point the man out to us, on the poster, I mean, if Dr. Liakos can spare her. About half an hour later, we pulled up outside the Royal Cinema. The movie playing was The Mask of Demetrios, with Peter Laurie and Zachary Scott. Evil genius ran the line on the poster, plundering for profit and pleasure. I hadn't seen it. I'd had enough of evil genius to last a lifetime. But Garlopas had seen it several times. This film is very popular in Athens, he said. I think it's always playing somewhere in the city, probably because it's partly set here and in Istanbul. But it wasn't either of those two actors that Calliope now pointed out to us. It was a fat actor, dressed in an overcoat, a spotted silk scarf, and a bowler hat. He was holding a luger, too. Hers had been a good description, as good as any police artist's. But she was wrong about one thing. The fat man was the leading actor in this picture. He was an Englishman called Sidney Greenstreet. I believe he plays the part of Mr. Peters, sir, said Garlopas. And there was one more detail Calliope remembered before we waved her goodbye. The man had bad teeth, said Garlopas, translating again, from smoking probably, with a single gold tooth in the front on the upper jaw. I see. So, it would seem we're looking for a German version of Sidney Greenstreet. Garlopas added, redundantly, because by now I knew exactly who had been so meticulously described, and it wasn't Sidney Greenstreet. Calliope had painted a picture of a man I knew myself, the very same man who'd got me the job at MRE, in return for the favor I dealt him back in Munich. Without question, the man she'd described to a T was Max Merton. Chapter 32 Back at the office in Athens, Telesilla was waiting patiently to go home with a large bag of groceries, but first she gave Garlopas's messages and then wrote out the telegram I quickly dictated, asking Dietrich to try to contact Max Merton in Munich. The last time I'd seen him, he'd told me he was going on vacation— and I now assumed he'd meant he was planning to impersonate a German professor of Hellenism in order to mount an expedition to dive in the Aegean Sea for some ancient treasures he could sell on the black market. It was just the sort of thing German lawyers do on their holidays. That or a little quiet embezzlement. If Dumbo Dietrich didn't find Merton, then this would tell me that maybe he was somewhere in Greece, lying low until he was sure that Alois Brunner wasn't looking for him, or possibly trying to find another boat, unaware of the fact that his frogman friend Witzel was now dead. But that he'd been in Greece, I was now absolutely certain. It worried me that Max Merton could have played me for a fool, although I could hardly see how or why— but the last thing I needed was for my nice, boring, reasonably paid job to be taken away before I'd even taken delivery of the company car. 
just as worrying was the possibility that criminal secretary Christian Schrema had been Merton's spanner all along, even when I thought he'd been working a double-cross, that perhaps the murders in Bogenhausen of GVP party donor General Heinrich Heinkel and his Stasi friend had been ordered by Merton himself, and I'd been the mug who'd insisted the lawyer should keep the money, which was probably what he'd been after from the very beginning. No questions asked, and money to help fund a little expedition in Greece, because chartering a boat is expensive, even when it was a boat that had been stolen from Jews. But I'd already decided on my next course of action, which was to take a drive down to Ermione, the town on the Peloponnesian coast where Siegfried Witzel had said the lifeboat from the Doris had come ashore, and there to ask the local coast guard for more information. I didn't know that I expected to discover anything useful, but at least that way I'd be doing something better than sitting around in the office waiting for Arthur Meissner to decide if he would meet with me in Averoff prison, or for Dumbo Dietrich to answer my latest telegram. Besides, I needed to look like I was doing something if only to keep Lieutenant Leventus off my case. I'd met a few high-pressure cops in my time, Heydrich, Neba, and Milka, to name but three— and while Leventus wasn't a killer like them, in his own way he was effective. Without my passport, I couldn't leave Greece, and until it was returned to me, I was the lieutenant's straw man just as surely as if he'd been the Kaiser and I his most slavish subject. Mr. Papakiriakopoulos telephoned while we were out, Garlapas said after Telesilla had left for the telegraph office. Arthur Meissner has agreed to meet with us on Friday evening, sir. That's something, I suppose, although I really don't know what I'm going to ask him, or exactly how I'm going to improve his weekend, not to mention my own. But I thought you told Lieutenant Leventis that you might be able to persuade him to tell you about Alois Brunner. I had to tell that slippery cop something. He's the type who could find every crime in the Bible and write someone up for it but I don't see why Meissner would tell me anything new. Leventus isn't offering much of a deal yet. He'll speak up for Meissner if Meissner contributes something useful about Brunner. That wouldn't be enough to convince me to spill my guts. And if he knows nothing, then what? We're back to square one. Yes, I do see the problem, sir. I must say this is all quite worrying. I put my hand on the Greek's shoulder and tried to look reassuring. Look, I don't think Leventus is that interested in you, my friend, so I wouldn't worry too much. It's me he wants turning the millstone in the Gaza. Because you used to be a detective in Berlin. That's right. A German detective to help a Greek detective solve a German murder. Yes. Well, in Athens one can understand that kind of Socratic dialogue. For now, what matters is that as far as he's concerned, you're just a nobody. It's kind of you to say so, sir. As a matter of fact, I've asked around about this man Leventus to see if my first opinion about him, on the likelihood of his taking a bribe, might have been wrong. And? By all accounts, he's perceived to be an inflexibly honest man. They're usually the most expensive people to try and corrupt. This is not to say that it's impossible, sir. Yes, but the first time you saw him you said you didn't think he could be bought, 
Nobody is above being bribed in Greece. Companies, judges, prime ministers, kings, them especially. Everyone in Greece has to have his fakalaki, his little envelope. It's just a case of working out what might be in it. Even a man like Stavros Leventis would probably not be above five thousand drachmas. At most, ten. I might raise a thousand drachmas on expenses, but that's it. Garlopas lit a cigarette. Is it possible that Mr. Dietrich in Munich would authorize this kind of unaccountable expenditure? I doubt it. Not even for a man who has saved them from paying out on the Doris? A quarter of a million drachmas? I don't believe they think like that. I was just doing my job. Hmm. Then we are forced to consider other methods of fundraising. Perhaps, during the course of your inquiry, you may see the opportunity for a little bit of quiet larceny, in which case you would certainly be advised to take it. You make it sound as if there's five thousand drachmas just lying around in this town. There isn't. Ah, you're wrong about that. If I might make a suggestion. Please do. The certified company check for twenty-two thousand drachmas payable to Siegfried Witzel. It was on the table at the scene of his murder in Pretanio. Almost certainly it's now police evidence. Almost certainly it is not. He took out his wallet and then unfolded the same certified company check, which he handed to me with a smile. I took the liberty of taking it when we left the murder scene. I suppose you'd like me to tell you why. Go ahead. Meanwhile, I'll try and figure out the real reason. For safekeeping, you understand. Just in case one of those uniformed policemen was tempted to steal it. You sly old dog. But how do we— I have a cousin, sir, who works for the Alpha Bank. I think that for a small commission he might be able to help us out. Of course, we should have to be careful to cash the check at a smaller branch outside Athens, most probably somewhere like Heraklion or Corinth, so that it might seem the check was presented for payment before Herr Witzel's unfortunate death. It could also require that you should impersonate Siegfried Witzel, but then that shouldn't be too difficult for a German, with the help of a Greek, that is. You are a man of many parts, Garlopas. Tell that to Mrs. Garlopas. Hitherto it's only the one part that has been of concern to her. I clapped him on the shoulder. Marriage is hell, but loneliness is worse. True. I'm not saying we should bribe that cop, but we ought to have the means to do so at our disposal, just in case it proves necessary. So go ahead and make the arrangements to get the check cashed. A wise precaution, sir. Can I see that map of Greece in the drawer? I asked. Which one, sir? We have several. The Peloponnese. I'm taking a day trip to Hermione. Maybe I can pick up some information on what happened to Witzel and his party when they came ashore after the Doris sank. At least that way I can make Leventus believe I'm actually making inquiries. Perhaps you'd be kind enough to tell him that's where I'm going tomorrow. Good idea. 
I hadn't yet told Garlopas that I'd recognized the description given by Calliope in front of the cinema, that Max Merton was the Sidney Greenstreet look-alike, and that I knew him. After what Leventus had said about Garlopas, I thought it best to keep him in the dark on that one, for the time being, anyway. He took the map out and handed it to me. I unfolded it and spread it on the desk. A cursory glance at the map was explanation enough for the wars of antiquity. Greece was mostly two areas of land, a peninsula on a peninsula, separated by the Gulf of Corinth. Until 1893 and the completion of the Corinth Canal, these two peninsulas had been connected by a piece of land about six kilometers long that resembled nothing quite so much as the union of two sexually reproducing animals, the north mounting the south, or Athens mounting Sparta, depending on how you looked at these things. The rest of Greece was just hundreds of islands, which gave the country one of the longest coastlines in Europe and probably one of the most independent and ungovernable populations in the world. How Nazi Germany had ever thought it might control a country like Greece was a mystery to me, and likely to the high command as well, which was probably why, until the fall of Mussolini, they had ceded control of the Peloponnese to the Italians. The invasion of Greece was arguably even greater evidence of Hitler's madness than the invasion of the Soviet Union. Hermione, I said, trailing my finger along the meandering coastline, Looks like a two- or three-hour drive from here. We'd best get an early start, said Garlopas. I've made other plans. No, I think maybe you should stay here and speak to your cousin at the bank. But you'll need someone to translate, sir. Hermione is only a small port town. They still eat cocaretzi. Believe me, you don't ever want to know what that is. They're peasants. I doubt you'll find anyone who speaks English there, let alone German. That's all right, I said. I'll be taking someone who speaks German. Someone Greek. Someone who's a lot better looking than you. Oh, you intrigue me, sir. I don't mean to. And you can park that intrigue somewhere quiet, Garlopas. We'll be back before dark, I expect. This wouldn't be the woman from the Ministry of Economic Coordination, would it? Miss Panatonio? The very good-looking lady who was at Bretos, who you told me wishes to improve her German? Yes. I must say, teaching a foreign language never looked like such fun. Garlopas grinned. She's a beauty. You'll forgive me if I say so, sir, but I'm impressed. No need to be. If you don't mind me asking, sir, does she know that you're under open arrest? That Leventus has threatened to throw you in jail unless you help him investigate Witzel's murder? No, she doesn't. She knows I'm investigating the loss of the Doris, and I imagine Mr. Papakiriakopoulos must have told her that I've asked to see his client, Arthur Meissner. But as of this moment, she hasn't mentioned that. So, on the face of it, she's going for the sheer pleasure of your company. Interesting isn't it? To be perfectly honest, I have absolutely no idea why she's agreed to spend the day with me. But I'm planning to have a hell of a lot of fun finding out. Chapter 33
It was the left that formed the backbone of the resistance to the German occupation, said Ellie. And for this reason, it was the left that earned the right to govern Greece after the war. But out of respect for his allies, Stalin ordered the KKE to avoid a confrontation with the Greek government in exile, led by Georgios Papandreou. The British, however, encouraged Papandreou to move against the KKE, and even sent tanks and Indian infantry units to support him against the population of Athens, which had supported the left and the KKE. As relations between the Allies deteriorated, Greece became a kind of British protectorate. The king returned to Athens, and the American CIA set about re-equipping and training the Greek army with the aim of destroying Greek communism, which was itself betrayed by Tito in Yugoslavia. The interior of the rover P-4 was all red leather and walnut veneer, quietly ticking clocks and plush-thick carpets, like an exclusive English gentleman's club. Ellie Panatonio looked good seated on the rover's red leather. She'd have looked good seated on a heap of worn-out car tires. I tried to keep my nice blue eyes on the twisting road to Armione, but they kept twisting their way back to her shapely knees, the chiaroscuro edge of her black stocking tops, and the Corinth canal that was her cleavage. The surreptitious enjoyment of all that makes a good-looking woman good-looking is perhaps the only pleasure remaining to a man that is neither illegal nor unhealthy, and it's a wonder we stayed on the road at all. It didn't help that her Shalimar perfume was my favorite, because it seemed somehow to encapsulate the delightful difference that existed between men and women. The stuff had the effect of making a woman smell like a woman— and making a man want to behave like a rampaging gorilla. But for Tito, Stalin would have supported the Greek uprising, she continued. As it was, the civil war that was fought effectively resulted in the destruction of Greek communism in 1949. Since when, the army, with the direct help and interference of the Americans, has been backing a succession of incompetent anti-communist governments. This latest one, led by Mr. Karamanlis, is no exception. Of course I wanted her, but I was also dumb enough to wonder if this was a good idea while my liberty was under threat from Lieutenant Leventus. Instead of devoting my energies to Miss Panatonio and the contents of her brassiere, I warned myself I needed to focus all of my attention on getting out of Greece and back to Germany. At the same time, I nursed a strong suspicion that Ellie might be using me for something other than German conversation. But so far I'd failed to see for what. In truth, I probably didn't care very much. It's usually been my experience that if a beautiful woman is trying to take advantage of you, then you might as well relax and enjoy it while you can. But make no mistake, she said in her reasonable German, this is a country run by the right wing, and before very long the army will reveal its true hand. We may look like a democracy, but underneath Greece is a very polarized society, with a deep divide between the right wing and the left wing. Mark my words, the right will use the excuse of our apparent political anarchy to move against not just the left, but Greek democracy as a whole, and we will end up with a military dictatorship. Apart from my own suspicions, the main thing wrong with her, 
given that in every other respect she was perfect, was that she seemed to be a communist. Seemed, because it's one thing talking that communist shit all the time, and she did, and quite another living under a communist government. Most of her political opinions were rubbish like that, the kind that had been rubbish in the 1930s, but were even more so now that it was generally known that the great leader Stalin had murdered so many in the name of brotherly love, and most of these were other communists. Whenever she started talking the left-wing janissary talk about how wonderful Russia was, I kept my muzzle shut out of respect for what was going on in the Corinth Canal. But a couple of times I couldn't resist teasing her with a glimpse of my own political underwear. I thought we weren't going to talk politics. This isn't politics. This is history. There's a difference. Don't you think there is? Not in Germany. Politics is always about history. Marx certainly thought so. True. I'm a Marxist, I said. Somehow I doubt that. Sure I am. Over the years, I've learned there's no point in having any money or owning property, on account of how people want to take it and give it away to other people. Marxists, mostly. Or did I miss something? But surely the GDR is better than the Federal Republic, she said. At least they have ideals. You can't surely believe that Adenauer's policy of political amnesty for Nazis was the right one. West Germany is nothing more than a front for American imperialism. I could have told her a lot about Russian imperialism, but after twenty-five years of the right versus the left in Germany, I was tired of the whole damned argument. Instead, I tried to move the subject back to her, which was a subject of much greater interest. Look here, if the right wing is so powerful in Greece, then how come a lefty like you gets to keep her job in a government ministry? I'm a civil servant, a lawyer, not a politician, and I keep my opinions to myself. I hadn't noticed. One of the nicest things about speaking German with you, Christoph, is that I'm able to speak freely. Isn't that sad? I really can't speak freely in my own language. That's one of the reasons I agreed to come with you today. I can relax and be myself. I'm glad to hear it. Anyway, I may be a communist, but I'm not a revolutionary. And I strongly believe that this new EEC is probably the best chance Greece now has to avoid a right-wing coup d'etat. They simply won't let us join if we're not a parliamentary democracy. It was a complicated world, whichever way you turned. And I was almost glad that all I had to worry about was getting home again. You know, you remind me of an old girlfriend of mine in Germany. She's called Golden Lizzie and she stands on top of the victory column in Berlin. She's got wings, too, and she's meant to inspire us to do better things. At least that's the way I always look at her. Are you partial to angels? Only the female ones. Does Lizzie have any other talents? She's tall. I wish I knew what you thought about things, but you don't say. I'm trying to work out why a country that produced the Parthenon and the Temple of Hephaestus doesn't have much in the way of good modern architecture. Most of the public buildings in this country look like gas stations or high-security prisons. Vitruvius would have swallowed his set square. Money, of course. There's not much money for public building. 
The Civil War left us even worse off than the Nazis. Anything else you're trying to work out? I'm German, so generally I'm working on something profoundly philosophical. And what is it right now? Lately I've been trying to work out why Mickey Mouse wears shorts and why Donald Duck wears a shirt but no shorts at all. And how is it that Goofy talks and Pluto just barks? It's a mystery to me. You're making fun of me. No, not at all. And maybe I just prefer to keep my opinions to myself. Anyway, they're usually wrong, or offensive, or both wrong and offensive. Try me. I'm really quite broad-minded. I wondered about that. You asked for it. Well, when a woman says she wishes she knew what some man is thinking, it's because she can't understand why he hasn't made a pass at her. Ellie laughed. Is that what I'm thinking? Probably. But I figure you'll tell me what you're thinking on that score soon enough. I'm not about to waste either of my two remaining wishes on trying to work it out on my own. What happened to the third wish? You're here in this car, aren't you? Ellie looked out the window and smiled, and we were silent for a couple of minutes while I negotiated a winding stretch of high mountain road. Aren't you just a bit interested to know if I want you to make a pass at me or not? Not anymore. You just satisfied my curiosity on that one. And? Now I'd like to get back to Mickey and Donald. Ellie laughed again. You are the most infuriating man I've ever met, do you know that? Yes, I'm what you lawyers would call incorrigible. She put her cool hand on the back of my neck, where it felt good. You're also very nice. Much more human than I would ever have thought possible. You're really rather a considerate sort of man, I think. My fatal charm. It never fails. Except when I'm relying on it to get me out of a jam such as my whole life since 1945. What did you do during the war, Christoph? Not enough. But here's a useful tip when you speak in German in Brussels. Unless you're talking to Bertolt Brecht or Albert Einstein, never ask a German what he did during the war. Not everyone appreciates it when they're told barefaced lies. Chapter 34 Hermione was a small port town on the Aegean Sea that resembled every picture postcard of a Greek village I'd ever seen. All blueberry sea and robin's egg sky, sugar lump houses and paper white caiques. We parked the rover and stretched our legs for a bit. It felt as if we were at the very edge of the known world, the kind of almost forgotten place where Themistocles, with one eye on the two islands of Hydra and Dokos that occupied the horizon like the gray clouds of an approaching storm, could once have sat on some high colonnaded terrace writing about an improbable victory over the Persians. Walrus-faced fishermen tugged on cigarettes and pipes as big as clay pots while they mended their nets and watched us with ancient eyes that might have witnessed the Greek navy boarding their biremes and triremes to fight Mad King Xerxes. Flesh-colored squid dried in the sun like wet swimming costumes on sagging lines, and stray cats dozed on the quayside or wandered between the tables of cafes as if waiting upon the day's customers. 
who probably weren't going to come. The late morning air tasted of salt and smelled of Greek coffee and tobacco, and the otherwise perfect stillness was periodically jangled with the spilling cutlery sound of a distant bazooki. It was a long way from Berlin. I couldn't have felt more German if I'd had a black eagle with red legs perched on my shoulder and a snarling Alsatian on a length of piano wire. We had a drink in one place where we stroked the cats and spoke to a man with a face that was a sun-baked mosaic of cracks and fissures, and who informed us that there was no Coast Guard's office in Hermione, and that we'd best ask at the local harbor master's office in the main square, where all boat owners tying up in Hermione were supposed to pay their mooring fees. The office was a rusticated white building with a blue door and shutters, and a Greek flag out front, just in case the color scheme left room for doubt regarding anyone's patriotism. The front door was guarded by a pair of seagulls as big as pterodactyls and probably just as fierce. Certainly they showed no fear of a large black Labrador that lay asleep or possibly dead on the porch. The harbormaster himself belonged to a species that was different from Hermione's other archaic humans, having a face with skin that hadn't been supplied by the local leather factory. His name was Athanasios Stratus, and he wore a black wool cap with a peak that was only a little less long and hairy than his nose. Explaining that I was from the ship's insurance company in Munich, Ellie did all the talking, and after a minute or two, Mr. Stratus opened an ancient wooden filing cabinet that was as big as a coffin, while she explained to me that he remembered the Doris and the German who'd owned it very well. He's quite sure there was actually a ship that sank near here? Several other people saw them coming ashore in the life raft that's still moored to the quayside where they left it, said Ellie. He's been wondering what to do about it. He says he sailed his own boat out to the position given by the German the day after, to make sure that the wreck was not a hazard to local shipping, and found some flotsam, some debris in the water that had not been deliberately thrown overboard, and was consistent with there having been some kind of accident. But the water is deep there, and he thinks there's zero chance of salvage. Mr. Stratus found a file in his cabinet and glanced over a handwritten report he'd made of the incident while he rescued a half-smoked cigarette that had got lost behind his ear and lit it again. But his every other look was reserved for Ellie. She was that kind of woman, the kind that could cause a traffic accident merely by standing at a bus stop. Every time I looked at her, I almost skidded to a halt myself. He says there were three men who came ashore in the raft continued Ellie. Two Germans and a Greek. One of the Germans was the boat owner, Mr. Wetzel. The Greek was the ship's captain, Mr. Spiros Repas. Mr. Stratus says the other man didn't give his name and said nothing very much. Ask him if one of the men on the boat, one of the Germans, could have been this man, I said, and provided a description of the man who'd posed as Professor Buchholz, Max Merton. After a while, Stratus nodded and said that it sounded like it was the same man. Then he and she talked a while and laughed, and that was fine, too, because he was only a man after all, and it made me think that she'd get more out of him if she made him feel like one. It had certainly worked on me. What happened to them after they left this office? One of them, Witzel. He caught the ferry to Piraeus. That's the quickest and least expensive way. The other two took a taxi farther down the coast somewhere. He doesn't know where. 
but he thinks the driver would probably remember. His name is Christos Kamenos, and we'll find him sitting in a black citron on the other side of the peninsula in front of the local Chandler's shop. I thought for a moment. The flotsam, I said. This debris he found floating on the surface of the sea at the place where the Doris went down. Anything interesting there? Some papers, that's all, said Ellie. He dried them and kept them in case they were important. Stratus produced a large waterproof envelope from the drawer. If he likes, I'll look after those, I said. The harbor master handed them over without demur, but to Ellie. I asked some more questions, but learned nothing new, and so we thanked him and went outside. The seagulls had gone, but the dog performing the great dead animal act was still there. As soon as I saw its diaphragm move, I found myself stifling a yawn and envying the creature. It was a two- or three-hour drive from Athens, and a two- or three-hour drive back there. She handed me the envelope. The papers were all in Greek— and Ellie looked at them and said they were nothing important, just Siegfried Witzel's identity card and some invoices. But being German and therefore punctilious about these things, I asked her to describe the invoices in detail, and found she was right. They were nothing important, mostly bills for food and drink and scuba tanks full of oxygen, which I supposed was quite important if you happened to be underwater at the time. But one of these wasn't an invoice at all, and its importance was immediately obvious, at least to me. It was a waybill for a consignment sent to the Doris at the Marina Zea in Piraeus, by none other than Mr. Georg Fisher, and which gave his address as Constitution Square in Athens. And while the waybill didn't actually identify the hotel, I recognized the Mega's telephone number, 36604. Clearly, Alois Brunner was more often in the Mega Hotel than I'd been led to believe. The contents of the consignment were very interesting, too. Witzel had taken delivery of a bronze Hellenistic horse's head from about a hundred B.C., which was, I told Ellie, the equivalent of bringing owls to Athens. That's a real German phrase? she asked. Absolutely. You're making fun of me. No, I'm really not. And the reason I'm saying this is because the specific purpose of Witzel's expedition was to sail to the site of a sunken ship and there to dive for ancient Greek artifacts, which begs the question why someone had such an artifact sent to the Doris on the day before he sailed. It seems the wrong way round. I frowned. And here's another thing. Witzel didn't ever mention this horse on his insurance claim with MRE but it was almost 2,000 years old. Yesterday, Dr. Liakos at the Archaeological Museum in Piraeus said that a good Roman bust of the second century might be worth as much as $50,000. This horse has to be worth some serious money, too. So why didn't he make a claim for that, I wonder? We started to walk up the hill to cross over to the other side of the Armione Peninsula. The little winding streets were deserted and quiet which made me quiet while I thought about this latest discovery. Unless the whole expedition was only meant to be a cover for something else, I said after a while. Like what? There were some smaller artifacts that Witzel didn't want to claim for either, and I thought this was because he was trying to prevent me from contacting Professor Buchholz. 
but now I'm thinking that maybe there was an extra reason. Dr. Liekos told me there's a thriving trade in black market antiquities through the port of Piraeus. Museums in small American cities want them to keep up with their richer neighbors. Apparently there's nothing like a marble bust to Socrates to make people think that Boise, Idaho is the cultural equal of New York and Washington. Liakos told me he'd even heard that Colonel Nasser was using ancient Egyptian art to pay for illegal weapons. Now that he's nationalized the canal, he's going to have to force people to pay to go through it, I guess. So maybe that's what they were up to. Maybe there were some other antiquities already on the Daras. Maybe they were taking those somewhere quiet to exchange them for weapons destined for Nasser. German weapons, I shouldn't wonder. On a remote island, perhaps. Greece has got lots of those. On the south side of the peninsula we found Christos the taxi driver, who rubbed a chin that might have doubled as a magnet for iron filings, and then said he didn't remember a German traveling with a Greek, at least until I gave him a few drachmas. I didn't blame him for his poor memory. It looked like he'd had a lean morning of it. Pocketing the note, he told us that he'd driven two men to Costa, which was another small port town about twenty kilometers south of Hermione. Anything interesting or important about Costa? Nothing much, came the answer via Ellie. But there's a small private airport near there, in Porto Heli. But he didn't drive them there, I said, or he'd have said so. No, said Ellie. He says he dropped them in the center of town, at a hotel in the main square. We got in the back of the Citroen and told him to take us to Costa. It seemed quicker than finding the place ourselves. Besides, MRE was paying. The Citroen was a traction avant, beloved of the Gestapo in Paris, and for a moment or two it was easy enough to imagine myself back there in the summer of 1940. Ellie was as beautiful and smelled as good as any French woman I'd ever seen, or inhaled. I smiled at her a couple of times, and she smiled back, and once she took my hand and squeezed it. It seemed as if I was making more progress with her than I was with the case. It took us less than half an hour to find ourselves in another Greek port town that was a little less picturesque than Hermione. The harbor looked more sheltered than the one we'd just left behind, and was perhaps shallower, too, as the sight of a boat that was only half sunk in the water seemed to confirm. At the main hotel, we asked about Professor Buchholz and his Greek friend, and learned only that they'd stayed just one night. Where they'd gone after leaving, the proprietor had no idea, and it was clear she didn't care to speculate either, when she heard Ellie speaking German to me. We had Christos drive us back along the meandering coast to Hermione, and there we ate a simple lunch at a little restaurant facing the calm sea on the South Quay, with more cats for company, and enjoyed the pleasant change in the weather almost as much as we enjoyed some Greek food and wine. So how is this trip connected with Arthur Meissner? she asked. I was wondering when you'd ask me about that. Tell me something first. What's your connection with this whole flea circus? Dmitri Papakiriakopoulos, Meissner's lawyer. I help him out sometimes, doing a bit of legal work to make some extra cash. Is that all you do for him? So far. He's curious, that's all. I'm kind of curious myself. No, I think you're just fine. 
in spite of the fact that you're a lawyer and a bureaucrat. What I am above all is a single woman, Christophe. I need the money. Economic coordination doesn't pay very well in this country. Greeks tend to resist most kinds of coordination. Yes, we gave the world democracy, but people tend to forget we also gave the world anarchy. I've always been a bit of an anarchist myself. It was easy enough when we had a ruler like Hitler and authority like the Nazis. But lately I've been slipping. I'm seriously thinking of hanging up the black flag and getting myself socially stratified. I think I might enjoy it. Anyway, that's not why I came today. I mean, I didn't come to pump you for information about your interest in Arthur Meissner. I just fancied a day off in a nice car with a nice man. To be perfectly honest, I don't know that I'm interested in Meissner, I said, ignoring the compliment, at least for the moment. But that cop Leventus is pressuring me to try and help him solve a case. Samuel Frizis? Yes. Why does he think you can help? Because you were a cop? There's that, yes. And the fact that I'm German. Witzel, my claimant and fellow countryman, got himself murdered, and Leventus seems more inclined to make me a suspect instead of a witness. Either I help him or I don't get my passport back. As a lawyer, I have to tell you that he has that power. I know. I spoke to another lawyer already. Anyone I know? A firm in Piraeus. Piraeus? That doesn't sound very promising. You'd better let me help you out if you get into any trouble. Sounds better. Thanks. I appreciate it. But where's the connection between Frizzus and Witzel? I can't tell you that. Leventus wouldn't like it. But there is one. Fair enough. So why did you come today? I told you. I came along for the German. And I don't mean the grammar. I should warn you about my grammar, Ellie. Like everything else I have, it's a little old and out of date. This is your teacher telling you now, so listen. I'm much too old for you, Ellie. I drool when I sleep and sleep when I ought to be awake, and my heart feels like it needs a wheelchair to get around. You should let me be the judge of that. I'm serious. I look at my wristwatch and I don't see what time it is. I see the time that was. Or perhaps you just don't like me. I'd probably like you a lot more if I disliked myself a little less. You're better than you think you are. Anyway, whatever happens, we're having a good time, aren't we? I know I am. Nothing else seems to matter right now. Being here today is lovely. I don't disagree about that. The last time I enjoyed myself this much, a witch was baking my sister Gretel in a pie. It's great to be out of the ministry for a while, to be away from Athens. It really does feel a lot like spring. Makes you feel lucky to be alive. She was right. It did feel like spring, and I did feel lucky to be alive, which was not unusual for me. And this might be why, on the short walk back to where I'd left the rover... I kissed Ellie Panatoniu under an ancient olive tree, and maybe it was also why she let me. It had been a long, cold, lonely winter. Chapter 35 
It was almost 5 p.m. when I got back to the office to check my messages and telephone Lieutenant Leventis after driving Ellie to her own office at the Ministry on America Street. It seemed we both had to work late that night. Call me, she'd said. 30931, extension 134. Maybe we can go and have a drink tomorrow. Or we could go dancing at Calabocas, perhaps. That's a club I know. Do you dance? It depends. On what? On who's pulling the strings. The way I see it, when you gotta dance, you gotta dance. Next step, Broadway, huh? As soon as I can get out of Greece. Don't be in too much of a hurry. That kiss this afternoon. I liked it. I'd like some more. Good. Extension 134. I'll arrange it. Telesilla had gone home, but Garlopas was still there. He looked more nervous than was normal even for him. Mr. Dietrich received your telegram, sir. He is going to telephone again at five o'clock his time, six hours. So I thought I'd better wait in case you needed my help with the international operator. Kind of you. He telephoned before? Twice. At three and at four. It seemed to be urgent. Good. He must have discovered something important. And did you find anything important when you were in Ermione? Yes, I think so. I've got some evidence that Siegfried Witzel and his friends on the Doris weren't looking for sunken treasure any more than they were looking for the lost city of Atlantis. I think they were involved in an illegal weapons deal with Alois Brunner. Neff, too, for all I know. Trading black-market Greek and Egyptian sculptures to obtain guns for Colonel Nasser and his Muslim Brotherhood for their war against the Israelis. Frankly, it's just the kind of cause that would attract an anti-Semite like Brunner. But from the way things panned out, he must have figured he was being double-crossed and decided to wind up the partnership. Permanently. Ah, these are troubled times we live in, sir. That's always been the rumor. But surely this is good news. It means you've got something concrete to tell Lieutenant Leventis, doesn't it? Enough to get him off your back, perhaps. Off both our backs. Perhaps. Garlopas grinned sheepishly. How did you get on with Miss Panatonio? Yes, that was interesting. We were followed all the way there and back. By who? Two men in a black sedan. They were working for Leventis, perhaps. Perhaps. Did you tell her? God, no. I didn't want to distract her from me. She did an excellent job of paying me a great deal of probably unwarranted attention. You think she was playing you? My strings are still humming, but I have no idea what her game is. At least not while she's using that chest of hers to breathe. It's kind of distracting. She says she does a little extra work for Dmitri Papakiriakopoulos, Meissner's lawyer. It seems he's curious as to why I should want to meet with his client. And because he's curious, she is too. Of course, she says it's more than that. She says she likes me, but... Of course. Right now I'm trying to limit things between us to something platonic. The only trouble is that making love is so much more entertaining. Garlopas chuckled. You're absolutely right there, sir. Who was it that said a woman is like a tortoise? Once she's on her back, you can do what you want with her. It doesn't sound much like Zeno. No, perhaps you're right. Anyway, you look like a man who knows what he's doing. That's an easy mistake to make. You see, I've met her kind before. 
She's a mortar bomb in a tight blouse. A man needs a tin hat and a lorry load of sandbags just to be near a girl like that. The trick is being somewhere else when she goes off. She does have a remarkable figure, sir. Just what the doctor ordered, I'd have thought. Always supposing that one can afford a doctor like that. Our discussion of Ellie Panettoniu was all the excuse Garlapas needed to find a bottle of four roses in the desk drawer and pour us a couple while we waited for Dumbo's call. There are some subjects, like analytic geometry and spiric sections, for which you need a drink, and Ellie's figure was one of them. She had the most interesting curve since Diocles described a cissoid. After a while, I sat down at Telesilla's desk to type out a report on the day's activities for Lieutenant Leventus. I saw no reason not to take his previous threat seriously. I mentioned the name of Spiros Repus on the assumption he'd already heard it in connection with the house on Pretaniu. And I told Leventus that I'd been followed by two men in a dark sedan. I even gave him the license plate, just to be insolent. I didn't say anything in my report about kissing Ellie Panettoniu, but I figured that if the men following us had been his, they could tell him that themselves. Of course, the report was more or less pointless, and mostly demonstrated that I was badly out of practice with a typewriter. But Leventus was right about one thing. It did make me feel like a cop again. Garlapas read my report and smiled sadly. Perhaps next time I could type this for you, sir. In Greek, there are many mistakes. Perhaps the lieutenant will be more inclined to be sympathetic if your report is in Greek. Next time. At last the phone rang. Garlopas answered it, said something in Greek to the operator, and then handed me the receiver. Munich, he said, and pressed his head close to the back side of the earpiece so he could hear. His hair smelled of limes. Christoph Gantz speaking. About time. I'd been trying to get hold of you all day, Gantz. Where the hell have you been? Dietrich's voice was testy and irritable, like maybe he'd forgotten how much money I'd saved the company since taking up my employment. I swallowed the rest of my drink. It sounded as if I was going to need it. Garlapas smoothly refilled the glass. I've been out of the office, sir. No kidding. Like I said before, the Greek police are proving to be less than helpful. Did you ever try to adjust a claim with a dead body on the floor? It's not so easy doing the paperwork. I get that. It's an awkward situation right enough. Naturally, we feel bad having landed you in this situation. But sometimes that's how it is. Adjusting a claim can be a tricky process. A claimsman has to expect the unexpected. That's what this business is all about. And sometimes the unexpected is a little more unpredictable than can reasonably be expected, especially when there's a lot of money involved. Did you find Max Merton? No, I didn't. Dietrich sighed. Look here, Gantz. The word from on high is that you're to drop this whole thing, right now. I've retained those lawyers in Piraeus on your behalf and told them to deal with the police through the usual channels. We will assist you in any way we can. Bail money, fines, legal fees, none of that is a problem. We'll bring you home, right enough. You've just got to be patient and let the lawyers handle it now. But this whole line of inquiry needs to end. 
Siegfried Witzel's claim for the Doris has been disallowed, and that's the end of it as far as MRE is concerned. Is that what Mr. Alzheimer says? Mr. Alzheimer, me, and God Almighty, in that order, see? You're not a cop anymore. You're a goddamned insurance man. It's time you started acting like one. What's the idea? There isn't any idea. They're just orders from upstairs. You're to drop this inquiry like it was red-hot toilet paper. When you're back home, we'll go out somewhere like the Hofbra House, and I'll buy you a cheap dinner to celebrate. An invitation like that I can hardly refuse. Good. Dietrich was oblivious to my sarcasm. Sure, boss. Anything you say. It wasn't what I felt like saying to Dumbo, but it sounded a lot better than go and fuck yourself. Working for MRE was still a good job for a man like me, with a car and expenses and what I most craved, which was a quiet life with a little respectability. I was determined to keep the job, in spite of what the big mouth in my square head felt like doing. My father would have been proud of me. He always did want me to go into something respectable like insurance. I picked up my glass and then drained it a second time. Was there anything else, sir? No, that's it, Gantz. Take care now. See you soon. I handed Garlopas the receiver, and he dropped it on the cradle and shrugged. Dale Carnegie, he is not. Dumbo's usually all right for an office man, but it sounds to me like someone's been shaking his pram. Perhaps it was Mr. Alzheimer. Could be. In which case, maybe someone leaned on Mr. Alzheimer. Like who? Frankly, I'd rather not know. But I do know that in pride of place in Alzheimer's office is a framed photograph of him looking very cozy with our own dear Conrad Adenauer. If, as Lieutenant Leventis says, Alois Brunner does have good connections in the current German government, then maybe Adenauer asked his old friend Alzheimer to have me lay off the case. If you don't mind me saying so, sir, none of that fits with Brunner being involved in selling arms illegally to the Egyptians. I mean, why would the West German government, a NATO member for only a couple of years, risk upsetting its new allies by doing something like that? It doesn't make sense, unless anti-Semitism is still the policy of the German government. Leventis said he thought maybe Brunner had been working for the German Federal Intelligence Service, the BND. So maybe he still is. Maybe this was an undercover operation. I don't know. The minute you get the peekers involved, then the screen ripples in front of you like a mirage, and before you know it, Red Riding Hood turns out to be the wolf. I lit a cigarette. It's beginning to look as though I'll need to bribe that cop after all. Did you speak to your cousin at the Alpha Bank about cashing that certified check? Yes, and he tells me that he can make this happen quite easily. Now all we have to do is bribe someone at the Ministry of Public Order with a much smaller sum to provide you with a fake identity card in the name of Siegfried Witzel. Will this do? I handed over the identity card that the Hermione Harbor Master had found floating in the sea at the spot where the Doris had gone down. The card was in poor condition, but all the pertinent details were more or less legible. Oh, this will do very well, said Garlopas. Where did you find it? I explained where it had come from. The picture is so faded that it actually looks a bit like you. 
That's hardly a surprise. I'm a bit faded myself, or more accurately, worn away like the relief on some ancient temple. He suggests cashing the check at the bank in Corinth, where he has a good friend who owes him a favor. That's less than an hour's drive north of here. It's perfect for us. Nothing ever happens in Corinth. At least not since the earthquake of 1928 and the Great Fire of 1933. Sounds like a poor choice of place to build a bank. Garlopas smiled. We could go there the day after you visit Arthur Meissner in Aberoff Prison, perhaps. On Saturday. Banks are always quiet on a Saturday. Yes, that should help us focus on what we're doing very nicely. There's nothing like planning a serious crime to give an extra thrill to a prison visit. Chapter 36 A warm afternoon in Athens, and Garlopas was spent behind the wheel of the rover, which suited me very well, given the homicidal impatience of other Greek drivers. To drive around Constitution Square was to invite an assault by car horn, and amounted to the clearest demonstration of jungle law since Huxley battered Bishop Wilberforce on his pate with a blunt copy of On the Origin of Species. No ordinary human could ever have enjoyed seeing Athens from the front seat of a car any more than he could have enjoyed trying to fly off the ski jump at Garmish. Even Garlopas was a different man behind the wheel of a car, as different as if he'd shared a couple of Greek coffees with Dr. Henry Jekyll. We reached Averoff Prison, about three kilometers northeast of the office, in a matter of minutes and a fug of burnt rubber. He could have found the place on Alexandrus Avenue in his sleep, because it was close to the Apostolos Nicolaitis Stadium, the home ground of Panathinaikos, the Athens football team supported enthusiastically by Garlopas, and, he said, the winner of the Greek Cup as recently as 1955. He parked the car and switched off the engine, and at last I was able to let out a breath. I was never so glad to see a prison, I said, looking out the car window at a grim, castellated gray brick building that was shrouded with palm trees. I lit a Corellia from a packet I'd bought and tried to compose myself. But Garlopas was looking serious. I'm sorry, sir, but I'm afraid I won't be going in there. You see, there's something I need to tell you. You're not the only one with a past. I mean, a past I'd rather not be reminded of. Don't tell me, you were a cop too? Uh, no, but during the war I was a translator for the occupation force, just like Arthur Meissner, first for the Italians and then the Germans. So far I've managed to conceal this fact, and for obvious reasons you're the one person with whom I feel I can share this information now. I certainly wouldn't tell anyone Greek. Meissner worked in Thessaloniki while I was based here in Athens, but he and I met several times at the Gestapo building in Merlin Street, and I'd much prefer it if we didn't meet again. He might try to blackmail me, to share the blame, if you like. I certainly didn't murder or rob anyone, which is what he's accused of doing by no less a figure than Archimedes Argeropoulos. He's a general and a Greek military hero, so his evidence has been very damaging to Meissner's case. 
No, all I did was to be part of a pool of translators. I even tried to ameliorate some of the general's orders. Nevertheless, in Greek eyes, this makes me a collaborator. Collaborator is just another word for survivor, I said. In a war, staying alive is a bit like playing tennis. It looks a lot easier when you've never had to play yourself. Take it from one who can boast a pretty useful backhand. That's kind of you to say. Unfortunately, there are plenty of Greeks who would like to see a rat like me disqualified. Permanently. Forget it. I think you're a pretty nice guy. For a rat? You're too kind, sir. I don't mean to be. Tell me, when you were working for the Third Reich, did you ever meet this S.D. Captain Brunner that Lieutenant Leventus has decided to make his life's personal Jean Valjean? On one of the few occasions I met Meissner, he was accompanied by some S.D. officers, and perhaps one of them might have been Brunner, but I really don't know for sure. There were so many, and men in uniform all look alike to me. Frankly, I'd never even heard the name Brunner until Leventus mentioned him in his office. Garlapas shook his head. What I did know was to stay away from Thessaloniki. You have to understand that things were much harder there because the SD were in charge. There it was all about persecuting the Jews. Here, in Athens, things were easier. Besides, Brunner was a mere captain. Mostly I worked for the military governor, a Luftwaffe general called Wilhelm Spidel, who Lieutenant Leventus mentioned to you when we were in his office. This is the real reason I tried to encourage people not to stay at the Grand Bretagne Hotel, sir. During the war it was taken over by the German general staff. Spidel's headquarters were in a suite on the top floor. Hitler once stayed at the GB. Himmler and Goering, too. I actually saw Hermann Goering drinking champagne with Rommel in the hotel bar. I was often in and out of the place to meet with General Spidel, and I don't like to go back there in case I'm ever recognized. Then, in April 1944, Spidel was transferred back to Germany, and I went to stay with a cousin of mine in Rhodes, until I judged it safe to come back to Athens. When Leventus mentioned Spidel and the massacre in Calavrita, you could have knocked me sideways. Frankly, I had no idea he'd ever had a hand in such a thing. I always found him to be very kind, very thoughtful, and a real gentleman. When he left Greece, he even gave me a nice fountain pen, his own pelican. That's something you learn about life. Sometimes the nicest folk do the most horrible things, especially in Germany. Along with the Japs, we virtually own the monopoly on very kind, very thoughtful mass murderers. People are always surprised that we also like Mozart and small children. I just wanted you to know the truth. It's a tough world for honest men. But don't tell any of them. No, indeed. I shall wait for you here, sir. I shall close my eyes and get some beauty sleep. Try a coma. Then it might actually work. Leaving Garlopas to his nap, I stepped out of the car and walked toward the gate, wondering just how much of what Garlopas had told me was true. Knowing him as I did, I half suspected that I might have got more information from the Greek insurance man about Alois Brunner than I was ever likely to get out of Arthur Meissner. 
The sentry waved me through the gate to the main door, where I rang the bell as if I'd been selling brushes, and waited. After a moment or two, a smaller door opened in the bigger one, and I showed the prison guard a letter Leventus had written for me. Then I was taken to a small windowless room, where I was searched carefully, and ushered through several locked cage doors, to a room with four chairs and a table. There I sat down and waited, nervously. I'd been in enough prison cells in my time to get a sick feeling in my stomach just being there. The only window was about three meters above the floor, and on the wall was a cheap picture of the Parthenon. A temple dedicated to the goddess Athena seemed a long way from a squalid room in Averoff prison. After a while, the door opened again to admit a small, dark, handsome man in his forties, and I stood up. Herr Meissner? When he nodded, I offered him a cigarette, and when he took one, I told him to keep the pack. That's just good manners when you're meeting anyone behind bars. He smelled strongly of prison, which, as anyone who's been a convict could tell you, is a cloying mixture of cigarettes, fried potatoes, fear, sweat, and only one shower a week. You're Christoph Gantz? Yes. I'm here because Papa Kiriakopoulos told me I had nothing to lose by meeting with you, said Meissner, pocketing the pack for later. But I can't see that I've got anything much to gain, either. After all, it's not like you're anyone important in this fucking country. Meissner spoke German with a slight Berlin accent, his father's probably, and very like my own. That's rather the point, I think. I'm not with the police, and I'm not a member of the legal profession. I'm just a private citizen. I'm only here because Lieutenant Leventus has my balls in his hand, and because I used to be a cop in Berlin, he thinks that you might have something to tell me that you wouldn't tell him. And perhaps since you can tell me in German, I guess he believes you can speak in confidence. I don't know. But you could even say I'm an honest broker. Beware of Greeks bearing gifts and all that shit. So what does he want me to say to the good German? I'll come to that. What he wants me to say first is that he thinks you're small fry. <laughs> Tell that to the judge. That there are more important fish out there still to be caught. You got that right, Fritz. I've been saying that for months, but no one ever listens. Look, for your information, I was just a translator, a mouth for hire. I never murdered anyone, and I never robbed anyone. And nor did my girlfriend, Eleni. Yes, I took a few bribes. Who didn't? This is Greece. Everyone takes bribes in this fucking country. Some of those bribes I took were to bribe a few Germans to help people, Jews included. This fellow Moses Natan, who says he bribed me to help his family. Well, I really did try to help him. But the way he talks now, you'd think my help came with guarantees. If you were a cop, then you must know what that was like. Sometimes you tried and succeeded, but more often you tried and failed. None of the people I succeeded in helping have turned up to speak on my behalf, just the ones I failed. As for those rape charges, they're nonsense. The cops know that, too. The trouble is that I'm the only one they've ever managed to put on trial in this fucking country for what happened during the occupation. Me, the translator. You might as well charge some of those women who were chambermaids at the Grand Bretagne Hotel when the German High Command was living there. The barmen and the fucking porters, too. But the Greeks want someone to blame. 
and right now I'm the only scapegoat they can find. So they're throwing the book at me. I'm charged with twelve thousand murders. Did you know that? Me, a man who's never even held a gun. The way they're talking, I'm the man who told Hitler to invade Greece. As if the Germans would ever have listened to me. It's a fucking joke. All those Nazi officers. Spidel, Student, Lance, Felmy. They're the ones who should be on trial here, not me. Oh, I get that. And look, I won't say I'm on your side, but I kind of am, because getting you to talk might put me in good odor with Leventus. Helping you helps me. He can't come out and say so to you in person. That would be political suicide for him, not to mention illegal. But he's assured me that if you assist him, he'll speak to Mr. Tusis. Tusis was the name of the man prosecuting Meissner's case in court. Get the charges reduced, I added. Thrown out, maybe. That's all very well. But right now it's possible I might be safer in here than I would be on the outside. Seriously, Gantz, I'm a dead man the minute I leave this place. I've got less chance of going back to my house in Elefsina than I have of becoming the Greek Prime Minister. Safe conduct on a plane to Germany. I'll even go with you myself. I want out of here as much as you do. How does that sound? It sounds great. But look, here's the biggest obstacle to making all that happen. I don't know that I know anything very important. If I did, I would have spilled my guts before now, believe me. Leventus is after someone in particular, one of those big fish, a man called Alois Brunner. He was a captain in the SD. Remember him? Yes, I could hardly forget him. No one could. Brunner was a memorable man, Herr Gantz. Him and Wislicini and Eichmann, all driven by hatred of the Jews. But, unlike Eichmann, Brunner was a real sadist. He liked inflicting pain. A couple of times I was present when Alois Brunner tortured a man at the Villa Mehmet Kapanja. That was the Gestapo headquarters on Vasilisis Orgas Avenue in Thessaloniki. And clearly he enjoyed it. I didn't want to be there, of course. But Brunner took out his gun and pressed it up against my eyeball and told me I could translate for him or I could bleed on the floor. Those were his exact words. Like I say, you don't forget the man like Brunner. But I haven't seen nor heard of him since the summer of 1943, thank God, and I wouldn't have any idea of how to find him. Brunner is back in Greece. He wouldn't dare. I don't believe it. Says who? Says me. I met him here in Athens. Although I didn't know it at the time, he's using an assumed name. Jesus, how about that? Now there's someone who really does have a lot to answer for in this country. But for Brunner and Vislicini, the Jews of Thessaloniki might still be alive. Almost sixty thousand of them died in Auschwitz. It was Brunner's job to get them on the trains out of Salonika. Maybe that's why Brunner feels it's safe to come back, because there's no one around to identify him. There's you. Sure. And tell Leventus I will identify him if it gets me out of here, no problem. Now all you have to do is find the bastard. What else can you tell me about Brunner? Hmm, let's see now. There was a hotel in Thessaloniki he liked, the Aegean, and another one where he took his Greek mistress, the Luxembourg. Her name was Tzeni, I think, or Tonya. Uh, uh, no, Tzeni. 
I'm not so sure he didn't murder her before he left Greece. A couple of times I accompanied him to Athens, and he stayed at the Xenius Melatron on Jan Smuts. There was a restaurant he liked, too, the Kisos on America Street. I doubt he'd risk going back to Thessaloniki, but Athens would be different. He wasn't here that often. Meissner paused. How did you know it was him? Because Lieutenant Leventis showed me a photograph, and I recognized him as the man who'd been talking to me early on in my hotel bar. Calls himself Fisher now, Georg Fisher, and he claims to be a tobacco salesman. You say he spoke to you? That's right. He initiated a conversation when he realized I was German. Was he just making conversation, or did he want something? If he did, then make sure you give it to him. That man likes to kill people, and not just Jews. So I hear. At first I figured it was just two Germans a long way from home, that kind of thing. But later on I realized he was looking for someone. He hoped I might lead him to the man. Because unwittingly I did, that someone is now dead. Who? Fella named Siegfried Witzel. Never heard of him. He worked for a man named Max Merton. Max Merton? Meissner stood up and lit one of the cigarettes I'd given him. He walked around the room for a moment, nodding quietly to himself. That name means something to you? Oh, yes. What can you tell me about Max Merton? Wait a minute. You said this Witzel fellow worked for Merton? Yes. When was that? Now, this year. I think Merton's in Greece, too. Meissner grinned. Now it's starting to make sense. Why Brunner would dare come back to Greece? Vislicini is dead, hanged by the Czechs, I think. And Eichmann, well, he's disappeared. In Brazil, if he knows what's good for him. So that leaves Merton and Brunner. It figures. I'm glad you think so. People remember Eichmann, Vislicini, and Brunner because they were all S.D., and they think all of the really bad men were in the S.S. because the S.S. was specifically tasked with killing the Jews. But the fact is, Merton was in charge of the whole shooting match. But he was just an army captain, wasn't he? True. Which would have made it a lot easier for him to stay beneath the radar. But Merton was the chief of military administration for the whole Salonika Aegean Theater. The Wehrmacht let him do what the fuck he wanted because they were mostly all in Athens and they didn't give a shit about Thessaloniki. For one thing, there wasn't a really good hotel like the GB. And for another, they preferred to keep their gentlemen's consciences away from the SD Myrmidons and what they had planned. But in Thessaloniki, if you wanted a truck, a train, a ship, a building, you had to go through Merton. You wanted a hundred Jewish workers to build a road, you had to ask Merton. He was the boss of everything. Even Eichmann had to go through Max Merton. Now there's someone who the Greeks should put on trial. The stories I couldn't tell you about Max Merton. He lived like a king in Thessaloniki. And not just any king, like Croesus, probably. He had a villa with a swimming pool, girls, cars, servants, the best food and wine. He even had his own cinema theater. And nobody bothered him. Meissner shook his head bitterly. But of course there's only one real story about Max Merton. If you ask me, that's probably what your Greek lieutenant is really interested in. 
putting Alois Brunner on trial is just a smokescreen. If Max Merton is in Greece, then there can be only one reason. And I dare say Alois Brunner knows that, too.'